like to be a to be a true rationalist like like to really pull on that thread as as long as you can um is to have a psychic psychic break it's not it's not recommended it, being a rationalist is not a, a healthy way to be um you know it turns you into people like robin hansen uh <laughs> it turns you into people like yosha bach uh, the, 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 these these folks are are perpetually self-conscious and self-aware of the fact that they live in this hypocritical world and it's very draining it's uh, it, it even leads to a kind of an a kind of depersonalization like once you start to realize that actually i'm just living in the simulated world of constructs um and my identity is illusion like that's not that's not something most people need to know with the wide adoption of machine learning technology do you think that regime change is inevitable? Uh, yes. And why is that? Why is regime change inevitable? Um, because regimes have a certain direction of fit to the current technological paradigm. So, um, you know, the predictions about the future are hard. Uh, but every major technological regime change we've had has, has preceded an institutional regime change from the transition from nomadic tribes to... Uh, settled agricultural civilizations to uh the you know the printing press giving rise to um the english civil war and the end of feudalism and the construction of the modern nation state to the industrial revolution moving us from the kind of laissez-faire classical liberal era into the in the u.s and the new deal um new deal, new deal sort of regime and uh and beyond so you know every time these transitions happen, there are major institutional uh, reconfigurations that take place. Right. So in, in part of that assumption is that machine learning is as big of a deal as, you know, agriculture or the printing press, or at least somewhere on that magnitude. Right. And I think I believe this. I'm not sure how many of my listeners believe this. So, so just make the case for that. Why, why is, why is machine learning that important? Um, well, I mean, there's, there's, first of all, I think there's a broad consensus that, uh, at least among people who uh, follow AI, that you know this is something that is on the on the level of, you know, somewhere between internet and printing press, and um, they just rarely follow up with the corollary that you know the printing press. Well, it did end up in a good place eventually. Did uh, have a pretty rocky transition. Um, uh, so why is machine learning? important i would say deep learning you know really building intelligent general systems is important well uh, because organizations are made of people and um we have organizations in the first place because of a variety of transaction costs as, as ronald coase defined them right like why do we have corporations why do we have governments uh well those governments exist those corporations exist because there are costs associated with bargaining with uh team production uh with sort of principal agent problems with search and monitoring costs, um, and and to the extent that you know you don't contract with something, a contract with a third party to do something because you know you can't watch over them and monitor them closely, uh, you bring that in house and you do that internally. Um, so those sort of costs structure why we have institutions in the first place, and the internet impacted on them 
to an extent, obviously, internet really impacted information access. Um, it made some some things easier to monitor, right? Uh, but uh, having intelligent software, software that has a world model that has understanding of sort of semantics and um, and can you know look at an image and tell you what's in the image, you know that leads to all those costs falling dramatically. Um, you know, it was always this question, and when I would read 1984 as a kid, like how do the cameras in 1984, uh, you know, how, how do they set this up where they have everyone being watched by someone else? Like who's watching the watcher, right? And you know, that's, that's a solved problem now because of multimodal models, you know, they can, you know, cameras now have some degree of mind behind them. Um, and going back to the, you know, the classic principal agent problem, AIs don't shirk, they work 24 seven, they don't steal from the till. So the concept of agency cost is also collapsing. Um, and I think a lot of the value gets unlocked with AI when you start having not just single chatbots or so forth, but you know teams of interacting AIs and sort of proto corporations. Um, and that will give rise to new institutional forms that are AI native, you know, people running companies with like two or three humans at the top and 50,000 effective employees below them stacked into hierarchies and so forth. Right, right. So I, I think for the normal listener, a great way to illustrate this is just like the podcast studio, right? I don't know actually it, how much of them know how the podcast studio works, but it's kind of easy to grasp. It's not that hard. So there are a few things I need to do to run like literally this podcast that you all are listening to right now. Um, I need to invite the guests on. Uh, that is something that actually could be done, you know, that could be done that I am not doing right now with uh, machine learning, but could be done like all of the, the technology, both interface with email or, you know, Twitter DMs and to, you know, write those outreach emails. That's totally something that can be done right now just with existing technology. Uh, something that is done right now uh, with machine learning is generating the transcripts. Um, something that, something else that is done, you know, with technology, not necessarily machine learning, is just setting up the communications, right? Recording mm -hmm. this, having doing all of the production. I mean, you you can argue that like some noise filters are some version of machine learning, or you know, um, isolating voice and so on and so forth. But you know, all all of the post production. I basically hit hit a button, and you know I'm not really spending a lot of time on production. So all of these things are kind of speeding up the process. I don't need you know like a full team to do this. I can just run this by myself. Yep. And I think that you know it's not even that far of an analogy to say that you can do this with um, a marketing department. You can do this with, uh, in many case, cases, you know, entire layers of middle management and. Uh, Really, like, I, I think that people, there, there's, like, two types of understandings of this. There's a type of understanding of, of this on, like, the theoretical economist level of kind of, you know, there are these theoretical transaction costs. There are these theoretical, you know, barriers to entry if you're setting a, up a company. And then there's the kind of practical, um, either either as a CEO or as, you know, someone working in one of these companies, you know, I, I work in software as well. It seems, the puzzle, the puzzle is that it seems both like obvious where you would slot in uh, machine learning models and it's not being done. 
right? Like even like the current level machine learning models, this is this is something that I've kind of cycled in my head a lot of times. Why why are we not seeing more mass layoffs, right? Like e- even with existing technologies, like why why is it not happening? Um, well, it's just hinter- hitting enterprise this year, so uh, I would say buckle up. I mean, we have seen waves of this in the past. So you know, the first thing I would say is like predicting the future um, in, in granular detail is next to impossible. But uh, ironically, sometimes things are easier to predict the longer out you look, right? So I, I don't know what the weather's going to be in a month, but, uh, you know, per, with the proviso that climate models aren't, aren't uh, you know, totally accurate, but, uh, you know, it's easier to model the climate potentially a century from now than it is to model the weather a month from now. And the reason that's the case is because you're looking at larger scale, scale in the sense of, uh, of, of physics and statistical mechanics, you know? Um, yeah, you're taking averages. Yeah, you know, you're coarse graining. You averages, you know, the, the variance cancels out. Exactly. And you, and nature has this way of sort of like the sediment in a, in, in a geology of, there, there being these different layers of abstraction where a lot of the noise and turbulence suddenly settles out and things look a lot crisper and clearer. And that's how, you know, someone like Ray Kurzweil writing in 1999 could have, uh, just by staring at Moore's law, right. Was able to pretty accurately guesstimate when we, when an AI would pass a Turing test, he said 2029, um, you know, he didn't know the exact form factor it would take. He didn't know like all the, you know, what the chipset would look like. He, he didn't have to know any of that because he was he was looking at this higher level of abstraction. So I don't know what specific, uh, you know, AI native companies and corporations and governments will look like in forty years, but I I think we can have confidence that that the world will change a lot, right? And um, when it comes to your question of why hasn't there been more layoffs, well, there were a spate of layoffs in and big tech, but you know, the world is much less competitive than, than it looks. And competition is the main thing that will drive adoption. Right. So, uh, 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 when computers just started being a thing, um, it, it, law, there, there were cases where, you know, there were law firms. I've talked to a person who was a, an associate back in the seventies. Um, and he was explaining that, you know, the partners at the law firm were, you know, all, all in their fifties and sixties, they didn't know anything about computers. They never looked at, at a computer. They didn't care about computers. They didn't want to use computers. They didn't, didn't see the value. Um, and you know, there's, there's eventually turnover and new people come in. Uh, and if, if new people don't come in, uh, new people start new companies and are, and use computers to, to process and do the work of, of a lawyer faster. Right. And you saw th- something like that in micro, um, with the, with the internet, uh, prior to the diffusion of the internet in the early nineties, uh, lawyer incomes were basically normally distributed, you know, around 50, $60,000, um, post internet, uh, they became bimodal. There was still that, that mode around the $50,000 mark, the sort of family lawyers. And then suddenly there was this thing called big law where you had a few partners at the top and a bunch of associates, sometimes hundreds of associates who, who are using, you know, LexisNexis and, all, and Westlaw and all these sort of legal databases 
to uh, accelerate legal research and legal drafting. Um, and that was that that came out of a, a competitive process that pushed folks to adopt things. You also saw in the late '90s with the with the first wave of computerization a, a genuine downsizing wave uh, that gave us movies like Office Space, right? Um, uh, it, it was, you know, kind of sigmoidal. It, it, it came and went, and we got a little product productivity boom. Um, but I, I think we're just at the the bottom of the uh, of the, of that sigmoid for for what's about to happen. Um, uh, you know, once people figure out that they can file an ESG report without having to hire a consultant for twenty thousand um, dollars, you know, those 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 different verticals are going to start. Collapsing, you, you see this already, it, you know, there's always a bleeding edge to any technology. In the case of the internet, it was, you know, media, right? Um, with like YouTube and the disruption of journalism. Um, here, you know, you're starting to see you know, bleeding edge being, you know, co-pilots for programmers. Uh, you know, the, the days of front end web developers seem pretty numbered. Um, so I, I don't, I don't really see the, the room for pessimism, you know, GPT-4 has been out since March. It hasn't been uh, even a full year yet. And uh, and really, we've been just exiting this uh, GPU bottleneck given supply chain um, issues and shortages of like advanced packaging and memory and so forth. Um, you know, NVIDIA has produced half a million H100s this year. They're going to produce 2 million next year. Um, so a lot of a lot of a lot of these capabilities that have existed for you know twelve months or more, or longer are only now being um, pushed out because they have the bandwidth to host and run inference for companies and finally have the partnerships to uh, and, and and also the technology has sort of reached a, a kind of um, threshold level of reliability uh, that I I do think these next two years you're going to start to see in enterprise a pretty dramatic. Um, I don't know if it's downsizing, but a reallocation at the very least. Yeah, I do think that you're right in that, you know, I shouldn't expect equilibrium to be reached within, you know, within like basically 10 months or so on. Right. So a big question. I know. The answer to a lot of these questions is time, and, and and that's like maybe a little bit of my frustration, is that, you know, you can look at these asymptotes, you can look at these trends of either compute or of, you know, business adoption of capabilities, and you can say like, okay, this thing is coming, most people do not realize it is coming, most people will not like listen to you if you tell them it's coming, so like what is what is there to capitalize on right what 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 is there to to do at this moment for for who for me uh, for yeah for for you for me for for you know someone listening to this uh i mean g- general advice is learn the tools um there are there's going to be a continuity with with these tools um you know they're you know i don't know if prompt engineer will still be a job in, in five years but uh, at least having familiarity with the technology and including sort of at a conceptual level, how it works, I think is valuable because it can give you some insight into, um, uh, the kind of, uh, sequ- sequencing or order of, of how things will be impacted, um, and plan accordingly. You know, there's definitely real world 
ways you can prepare. Um, Paul Cristiano, the uh, alignment researcher, uh, he said in an interview that uh, he's twice levered into the stock market. <laughs> so he owns basically a bunch of a bunch of AI exposed companies, and you know, I think five percent of his portfolio is Tesla. Um, and he's taken out big loans to, to to double up on that. Um, so that's really putting your money where your mouth is. But there are other other smaller things. So if you're, you know, I recently did a briefing on um, LLMs for tax prep and the use of AI for for sort of democratizing the ability for um, you know low income tax filers to to you know get real time tax advice or even have you know automatic uh, their their tax return prepared automatically. Um, and I presented this to a a group of funders who normally fund. Um, and support the VITA program. This is a voluntary income tax uh, assistance program that the IRS uh, endorses. Um, and these are like volunteers who help low income people file their taxes. And they maybe reach like 1% of the population. Um, but it's this constant sort of progressive cause to try to get more funding for the program. And so they have like a five year campaign to, you know, take this program from 1% of the population to 2% of the population. And it's like, you know, you don't need to know exactly how the future looks to realize that uh, putting money behind that is a malinvestment and you need to change your plans. Right. I think that's, yeah, like returning to the topic of regime change, I think that there's this conception of regime change that happens, which is like, you know, either the French Revolution or the American Revolution or the Russian Revolution, all of these revolutions, right? That there's like a very clear, you know, definite, you know, you were under the rule of the czar, but now you're under the rule of uh, the, the rule of the Soviet Union. Or, you know, you, you were under the rule of the British, and now you're under the rule of, you know, the American Republic. Um, and I think that with many of these technological revolutions, that's not quite the case, right? Or in many cases, the technological revolution precedes the, uh, the, the you know, either military or social revolution. I, I think that when people, you know, when people think of the idea of a regime change, that's something that's very, um, that's something that's very scary that, like, like I said, they associate with the military, right? For, first of all, right. do, you, do you think that that premise is true? And if you do, like, do you think that that's a mistake? Um, I have no idea what, like, the normal person, uh, you know, word association is with, with regime change. For me, like, I... I as an economist, I associate it with like monetary policy, right? <laughs> you know, when when uh, uh, infl- when countries adopted inflation targeting in the early '90s, that was you know they call that a regime change, right? Um, uh, so right. it doesn't I, I it doesn't have to have that say, you know regime change. Honestly, <laughs> you know, that's what the normal person thinks of. It doesn't have to be that uh, dramatic, right? So you know, one real life example of a regime change that we all experienced within the last decade was the shift from. Uh, ride hailing being something that was controlled by public, publicly regulated and licensed taxi commissions to something that was governed by competing private platforms that used reputation mechanisms and the internet to match you with drivers. Um, and that was a regime change that took place in a span of, you know, less than five years, the ratios of, of, uh, you know, rides done by taxis to versus Uber and Lyft flipped from like 90-10 to 10-90. And, um, and there was violent resistance. You know, speaking of the French Revolution, you know, taxi drivers in, in Paris violently protest and like we're throwing rocks off bridges and stuff. <laughs> um, you know, 
some of the New York taxi drivers, you know, uh, because of the insane uh, medallion system, were like deep in debt and like started committing suicide, right? So like, you know, they're dramatic for the people affected directly, but um, but yet there was a kind of, you know, almost a kind of telos to just how much better and more efficient it is to be able to pull up your phone and have a car arrive within three minutes. Um, and what, what changed was not just the technology, but it literally was a kind of regime change in governance from a public utility model to, uh, to a private platform that um, does its own kind of quote unquote regulation through these reputation mechanisms, you know, your five-star rating um, through uh, various kinds of dispute resolution devices like how eBay or Amazon um, runs their marketplaces. Um, and so that, that, that's a kind of governance, a kind of private governance, but still a kind of governance. Um, and, uh, you know, regime changes at the level of, of nation states can be dramatic or can be more gradual, right? So, you know, with the expansion of telegraph and railroad networks in the late 1800s, there's a paper showing that that was uh, followed by um, the growth in the federal federal bureaucracy, right? The rise of sort of mm -hmm. early administrative state kind of um, agencies that could leverage the telegraph and rail networks to, you know, sort of, you know, to quote Mar uh, Thomas Friedman, the, it made the world flatter, right? <laughs> it made people closer. Um, it also made it easier to monitor agents of the state in distant places. Um, and so that was a, you know, that it wasn't like we went from, uh, uh, minarchism <laughs> to, to the new deal. There, there was this more gradual thing going on. Um, but sometimes changes can be more discontinuous because, uh, for whatever reason there, there are blockers or impediments to a more gradual transition. Um, and those blockers sort of maintain a kind of status quo ante um, until things build up enough that the change is, is more dramatic and sudden, right? In, in the same way that, in, in an analogous way that, you know, it'd be so much better if the US Congress wasn't full of people who are in their 80s and 90s, right? Um, because when they die, as Diane Feinstein just died, you know, the next generation is just going to like leapfrog Gen X straight to like millennials. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, and so that will lead to a more like discontinuous, um, nonlinear kind of like shift in our, our political culture. Um, when it didn't have to be that way. Right. Uh, other, other countries like, you know, Canada, for instance, has had a much more sort of gradual, smooth transition from different generations and their political leadership. Um, but, uh, in the U S case, there were a variety of sort of sociological political factors that, uh, you know, preference the boomers and the silent generation and let them sort of hold on to power longer than they needed to. And so that's going to create a, a sort of step function change. It didn't have to exist, but, but, um, but that, that when regime changes are more dramatic, it's normally because of dynamics like that, things that were holding back, um, deeper structural trends until they reached a the kind of tipping point. Right. So you have this, you know, once again, there's some macro and the micro, right? There's the long-term, there's a long-term big picture. And then there's, you know, like, he, this might be a fun question. Like, 
will there be will we have elections in the in the US by uh 202040 will will there be a 2040 presidential election um I, I would make it like a binary like if you know if there's not like total state collapse if like we maintain continuity with our existing constitutional structure then yeah of course um will it matter or you know what <laughs> what the election looks like it, it's really hard to hard to foresee um you know if if we have systems that are like get so good at predicting humans right and this it's sort of like a the limiting limiting case of like polling right like, mm-hmm. like like why do we have elections when uh you know if our poll if our polling gets so good that we know who's going to win the race before the elections even held um uh so there, you know there might there might come a point where it seems sort of redundant um but uh this goes to sort of what institutional structures are really sticky and which ones are allowed to have have sort of um uh you know flexibility in their joints right and and you know we still have an electoral college right and democrats will point out that this is uh, sort of an insane relic of like colonial america um you know there's there's reasonable ways to defend it as well but but bigger picture it is just this kind of like historical artifact that we're kind of stuck with because uh you really can't amend amend the constitution without um a a, a very unusual set of uh yeah yeah stars the institutions lag very very hard right and they're, yeah. they're meant to lag technology and what's interesting is that you see kind of science and here i don't mean as like a political or like the politicized version but just you know modern polling and modern honestly i think that you know one way in which campaigns were revolutionized by the internet is just by like the first thing that was revolutionized is kind of like sales and a b testing right and then that revolutionized campaigns not not so much in terms of mass appeal and getting votes but in terms of fundraising, like the fundraising revolution, like the grassroots fundraising revolution was like entirely a product of the internet, right? Those the, those kind of strategies, those kind of, you know, like processes that you could run within your campaign were just like non-existent before. Right. And really, it really starts with direct mail, but but direct email is sort of a next, next step. Mm, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you, you see that step change there, right? And what I think is that, you know, you look back at a lot of historical elections and just, just how they were, were run, like what kind of appeals they were based on. It's, it's very clear that like, they just weren't doing, they just weren't being very strategic at that time. Like, like with the, with the revelations of kind of like how polarization really works, how useful, you know, obstruction really is, how much you can, rely on like uh what was it um thermostatic preference or whatever people reacting against whatever the legacy party is whatever party is in power like you, you there there's two ways to look at this one one way is that like people just suddenly started behaving differently and like oh look they're so polarized or like the other way to read it is that like oh it's just that like it's just that, like, everyone from, like, George Bush onwards, or or you could say, like, yeah, George Bush for sure, George Bush, Al Gore, um, uh, Kerry, 
even like early Obama, you know, like like he was a talented guy, but the way like the campaign strategy just like completely, you know, misunderstood how the American people, how the electorate worked. And now now we know, right? And I, I think that machine learning is going to do something very similar. Where like th- these are things that we could do and maybe like Trump will be seen as a pioneer. There there are things that like you could do with the electorate in terms of, you know, parasociality mm-hmm. that, you know, in hindsight, you know, like in, in 2032, the idea will just be, oh, we should have been leveraging parasociality this entire time. <laughs> and Trump did it right, but he was also doing like the super primitive, unsophisticated version. And now we have, it's just normal for like both parties to be using parasociality everywhere. You know, both parties yep. are Twitch streamers. Yeah, both are doing Instagram lives from their kitchen. Yeah, yeah, exactly, um, exactly. You know, this this is great. This is also like John Asconis' thing, right? Um, it's all it, it's all like ARGs. It's all alternate reality games. It's all like participatory. Everyone should be involved. <laughs> you know, you should be. You know, it's not just like it's not just like oh, you sh- you should share because you care about the campaign. You should share because that's like, you know, there's a lore related reason for you to share. Whether it's, you know, that this is how you defeat QAnon. This is how you defeat, you know, like, like, this is what we need. We need like an online integrated religion, right? Instead of tithing, you're like sharing the social media post. Um, that, that, that is the integrated part of the religion. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe you're still tithing, you know, going back to campaign donations. That is how, yeah. Well, you there, ha- there has been change, like both. the rise of small dollar donors, um, you know, it ha- and, you know, combined with the fact that we're all much more affluent, uh, you know, even down the income scale. Um, and so people have disposable income to give to candidates and so forth. You know, it has definitely changed politics, right? Because it gives us, you know, Ilan Omar, right? And um, if you if you couldn't have a, uh, uh, a pro-Palestinian position in Congress because of APAC or something like that, now you can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is the, this is brilliant. I think that, you know, the the way that people are looking at polarization now, it's just going to be so anachronistic. It is going to be the pinnacle of cringe to be like, oh man, polarization. It'll be kind of like saying, you know, it'll, it'll be kind of like saying like, oh, the, those kids on their, uh, the, the, those kids and their like violent video games. It'll be kind of like that. Right, but but like so much more, so much more, you know. I yeah, I don't. I honestly don't know. I can't. Um, like my world model doesn't say that polarization gets worse or better. Um, that that to me is a, a um, free variable. Really? So so like to me, like polarization is just revealed preferences, right? Like to to me, like the narrative goes something like this: you had you had an era of technology that was basically like centralizing due to transaction costs. Um, TV is the best example of this. This like kind of rhymes with apology stuff, but I think like the apology stuff involves power a lot, other rather than just like revealed preferences. And then so, so like everyone wanted to watch like the highest uh, production value TV, and you look at like for example, and, and like the best example of this I think is you look at video games. You look at like a much more centralized market in like you know early two thousands, um, early twenty tens. And what it's become is it's become this like super fractionalized thing where you have all these random like much lower graphics, but you know certainly runs smoothly, certainly like works great. 
you know, but is not it is not like a movie, you know, like high production value video games are like basically like a cinematic, you know, uh, experience now. But you have these you have these really like nostalgic game engines. And what it's evolved to is it's evolved from, you know, a singleton or like, you know, a few a few big players with you know extreme amounts of concentration. And that's just the reveal preferences because people love the production value to, you know, this much more, you know, diverse in the literal sense thing. And you can tell, I think that people are often, you know, in denial about certain things around consensus. And the easiest way, this is like a, like a 1%, you know, oversimplification of my point, but the 1%, you know, oversimplification of this is that, you know, consensus is just evil. Consensus is just, like, people lying about what they actually believe. You know, like, when you had Kumbaya, when you had, you know, like, bipartisanship, uh, Bill Clinton coming together, you know, the voters didn't actually want that. They were just, like, lying because they, they, they like, needed to, you know, they, they wanted to socialize. They wanted to engage in these empty interactions with people. And to do that, they kind of hid their actual beliefs in that, you know, you have this, you have this change in technology, you have this change in regime, you have this accompanying change in social norms, and that people will just realize, like, oh, polarization was good all this time. Mm. I mean, to, to me, the way I think about polarization in the, in the U.S. context is sort of, uh, there's a, you know, the grass, there's the grass tops and the, and the, and the grassroots. So at the grassroots level, it's people self-sorting post- um, post civil rights act and the parties, uh, you know, the parties moving from, um, Sorry, so the grassroots are the voters and then the grass tops yeah. are like the elites. Yeah. So like the political structures and the voters. So at the, at the level of voters, um, people self-sorting, uh, both, both ideologically and, uh, geographically. So, you know, there's a very, very strong, uh, gradient for, uh, from basically progressive, progressive to, to uh to right wing from uh, along population density so um the you know, democrat strongholds are are the cities and republicans strongholds are the rural areas and the suburb, suburbs are are purple um and that's like a very clear um you know manifestation of self-sorting uh then along with the ideological self-sorting where you went, went from parties that had uh because of geographical um, geographical, uh, uh, you know, the, the parties used to be much more regional. Um, and so it, it meant that the, the national parties contained it, mul contained multitudes. And so you could have conservative Democrats and, and liberal, liberal Republicans. So, so, so that there's that, that dynamic, that sort of self-sorting dynamic. Um, and then at the political level, the U S I think is unique in how our political structure amplifies that polarization. Um, to the point where, you know, because of the primary system in particular, that you know maybe maybe four or five percent of the electorate are are actually like, uh, you know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene style populist Trump people, uh, like super mega, uh, and yeah, ultra but, mega as they yeah, say the ultra megas the ultra megas and the ultra DSAs, uh, Bernie types like they, they're a, a tiny fraction in the fringe, but they they're. Our perception of of our politics is all warped because they they have an outsized role in um, in the way we select candidates. Um, mm. But that's a totally contingent factor. It didn't have to, it didn't have to be that way. Um, 
in the same way that we didn't we don't have to have a a hazard rule in Congress that says that you can't vote for on something unless your whole party votes for it. Um, those are those are contingent political things. So I think I think polarization. Part, there's a part of it that's real, which is the self sorting, and a part of it that is is institutionally mediated, which could change. But then to your earlier point about um, you know the internet and and the sort of broader trend towards diversification and product differentiation and people being able to you know find their niche. Um, now that to me looks like a trend leaning against polarization at the at the uh, uh, at the rank and file level um, because no no longer do you have to sort of pick between the the douchebag and the and the the turd or whatever, whatever the uh, South Park thing is um, uh, you know the the two party system sort of forces everything into that binary but people's preferences are actually much more heterogeneous. Um, and that suggested depolarization. And in fact, like along some metrics, like the Republican Party has depolarized in terms of race. Um, so I, I think polarization has, has been overstated. Uh, I think it gets exaggerated because of our political institutions. And I think, if anything, technology is leading towards um, a refragmentation where, uh, where things aren't so unidimensional. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, what happened at the Republican Party is beautiful, right? In, in in my view, it's just this total. I think what the Republican Party had before was a kind of single axis. There was very little. There was extreme polarization, or like this was not just the Republican Party, but the entire you know, the entire. Um, uh, Overton window, the entire, you know, Republicans, Democrats, centrists, whoever, there was just like extreme amount of infighting on like whatever the current thing was, you know, people talk about the current thing now, you know, like this is something that's very funny. Curtis Jarvin has this trick where he says, you know, like democracy and politics, you know, people, people, you know, praise democracy. It's their God, um, perhaps the God that failed. And uh, they hate politics, but it's really the same thing, right? It describes exactly the same process. And I, I, t- I think that it's even more shocking if you look at, like, if you look at people's view of uh, consensus versus their view of absolutes, you know, or like centralization. So centralization, that's more of a theoretical term. I'm not sure, you know. Like keeping, like China is is a consensus society, right? Like like China is a society in which you you know you achieve the consensus, you bring the people together, and and of course like people don't think of it like that because China is supposed to be the enemy. But mm. uh, to to me, like they should also think about that in terms of the, the the domestic government. You know, whenever the consensus is created, it's often done by like piling people, directing all of their attention to this one issue and then that's how the teams are made uh whereas like you, you know that's the, that's the other thing like people associate like the current thing with the with the internet you know with, but to me like the current thing was much more powerful you know as, as an idea you know as something that attracted much more attention when you had the centralized cable tv system you know that's my reading yeah. of history and you combine these things, it's like, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right in that it's a fragmentation, not only in terms of, you know, what values people have, you know, but also what what issues are, are being cared about at all. You see this, you know, you see this with the Republican debate, 
you see this with like you know the Hulkin debates. The, the first one, there were almost no questions about you know education, uh, you know quote unquote wokeness, civil rights. Um, and in the second debate, there was like a bit more of that, but it was all framed from like the left wing perspective. You see like the active fragmentation of both the candidates on stage. You have uh, you know you have Vivek, you have DeSantis in some respect, really talking about like the administrative state stuff, which I do think is kind of like you know the the kind of like republican elite quote-unquote obsession right and, and then you really have you you have like the the kind of hosts being you know bringing back the asylum question you know like ronald reagan you know he granted asylum don't you think you should be more like ronald reagan and give more more um illegal immigrants asylum like that it is this active it is this like spectacle of fractionalization of you yeah. know all these people diving off into their own corners this is why i think also like Nikki Haley is great. Nikki Haley is just like an unironic neocon. She just <laughs> loves it. You know, she she leans into to like being a, a neocon. It's just wonderful. You know, like I, I don't agree with her positions, but it's like great that she's there. It adds yeah. to the spectacle. The diversity you know, that, is our strength. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my, my uh, Steve Tellis has a great essay called "The Future Is Faction." A sort of yeah, yeah. Oh, I've read that a, a while yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, this is quite, this is like... and, and part of the part of the argument is that uh, the polarization, going back to the sort of the institutional way it's mediated, it is the aberration. It is the exception to the rule. American politics has always been much more factional. It's been, you know, it's it's Madisonian, right? Madison talked about factions. You mean um, you mean lack of polarization is the exception to the rule? Uh, no, the polar polarization is the exception. That's what I'm saying. And polarization is part of partly a byproduct of uh, congressional leadership centralizing power post Gingrich um, and leading to this sort of parliamentary phase where the where where you know Nancy Pelosi's like this like the basically the prime minister right or, or Kevin McCarthy now um, and that and and that enforced a degree of consensus uh, because in parliamentary systems you vote in blocks. Right. And but America is not a parliamentary, parliamentary system. So that 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 was like a two decade. Okay, I, I phase. think we mean like two things uh, well, with regards the, the, to polarization. Yeah, but by the, by the, polarization, just... I just mean like the death of the uniparty, you know, that the parties disagree on more and that there's more disagreement within the parties. You know, I see like the. So, OK, that, that's that's like... interparty. I'm, I'm talking about intra and interparty. So intra intraparty. The reason the reason there's more polarization interparty is in part because the intra-party consensus and consolidation is is breaking apart and so now and so the you know the native nativist wing of the republican party used to have to be bundled together with the establishment wing and now they have the institutional infrastructure to be sort of separate institutionally complete like parties within a party right that have their, their own infrastructure their own polling their own everything their own think tanks and so they're, they're, it's like there are multiple parties but they're bundled under the Republican brand. Um, and and that that's that's sort of what Trump kicked off. It was under the surface already, but um, because Trump kind of represented the 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 fringe, the the like the AFD vote, right? The like the 20% of the coalition um, taking the the top position, it, it ended up it ended up just breaking that that aberrant period of um, of, of strong con within party consensus. 
And so now the parties are factionalizing internally. Um, and, and I think that will lead to, uh, will, will lead to inter-party depolarization eventually because the, the, in, the inter-party between party polarization was in part enabled by the unit party. It was enabled by the fact that you have, you know, vote for A or vote for B, um, and they'll, they'll, they'll pretend to be in different corners, right? But, but if those parties internally factionalize um, and, and start to, to, to illustrate their multiple dimensions, um, then you get back to something that looks more like American politics pre-1970, where you, you do have odd bedfellow coalitions. And, and that, that ends up depolarizing inter-party competition because Josh Hawley and Elizabeth Warren can agree to regulate big, big tech or, or what have you. Right. I think that's, yeah, yeah. I think we don't, don't really disagree. I absolutely agree with you when you said, well, like, I don't know, like factionalization is the norm. I think that's what we agree on. I think we agree that this period of time in which there was, you know, basically the post new deal era, even then there was some degree of faction then, you know, that's what, yeah. to, to me, like that's the dawn of the uniparty. Right. Um, I, I would say more like, uh, post and like post Reagan as well with Clinton. Yeah. Right? yeah like that's say, like the, the, that's like the, you know, yeah. What we, what we identify as, that's peak as the, uniparty. Yeah. Then the, the, you know, the so-called neoliberal era, you know, you could, you could wrap that up as saying like, um, you know, late cold war period where the only allowable, the, the allowable window of opinion, the Overton window of opinion was like left Rawlsian or, or right Lockean. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I think that, you know, e even if that might be like more marginally correct, right? Even if that might be closer to, you know, on empirical questions where this, th this is even, you know, a sensical question to ask, where it is closer to the truth, you know, this level of consensus, this level of uniformity is just like a huge aberration. It just, it just makes no sense. It's just like, it, it's just... So something has to, to me, like something has to be like deeply wrong and contingent in order for this to occur at all. You know, there has to be, you know, all of the, it has to be a perfect storm keeping uh, things in place. And I do think, you know, high transaction costs, um, you know, the cable television era, that specific moment where I think, you know, you look at Bill Clinton, for example, where like individual charisma really mattered that much and it was like i don't know because because you can say that like trump is like another figure of individual charisma or obama right but the departure from like the clinton obama era to to trump it does it does feel like a different kind of charisma right it's like right. The, the, the the you know one to many charisma versus the many 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 to many charisma like the many to many charisma has to actually be able to compete, whereas the one to many has to be able to you know the alternative is nothing. You have to be right. better than nothing, right? But uh, but you would agree. But so but you you still disagree that we're not at you know, peak polarization in terms of like left right polarization. I feel like we're peaked. I don't know. I think that we're going to get more more factionalization. I agree with you. I don't think that's going to make the parties hate each other um, less. You know, like, like, this is why I mean, like, I think that, you know, you have the asymptote of, like, realizing that, you know, those people shouldn't rule over you. 
And right now we're like kind of nearing the asymptote with regards to um, with regards to left right. Like it, it it's become like very evident that like actually being ruled by a Democrat sucks if you're a Republican, and being ruled by a Republican sucks if you're a Democrat. But like I, I agree with you that people are going to start realizing this about like other people in their party. Right. Like I think yeah. like Nikki Haley voters, they would like really like hate being uh, ruled by Vivek and Vivek voters. They would really hate being ruled by Haley. Right. Right. And people are coming to this realization and like the medium of the age, um, either social media or like I think ML as well, it is is going to just like double down on this. Right. You know, it's right. going to make it even more obvious that like the Vivek voters hate the Haley voters and vi- uh, vice versa. Right. Right. Or at least hate, you know, what they would do to their country. You know, yeah. The last and, midterms, the last midterms had some of the highest rates of split ticket voting in recent memory. So that's yeah, that, yeah. that to me is like down. That's that's like you know, I'm shorting polarization off that fact, right? Because you have people in states who would be voting for, um, you know, uh, 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 Democrats voting for a, a Republican governor because of the fiscal situation in their state, or you have you know Republicans voting um, for uh, for a, a candidate, but then. But then voting to, you know, voting down a ballot measure on uh, that would restrict abortion, right? Um, yeah, that this is and even even the abortion issue. Like, it's a good another thing that's I think sh- uh, shorting polarization because suddenly you know Republicans have sort of are the dog that caught the bus, and now that Roe v. Wade's overturned and these states have to you know actually have degrees of freedom and how they regulate abortion, um, you're starting to see Republican candidates moderate on their abortion stances. <laughs> um, Okay. Okay. This is this is this is great because I think like you're right. So so there's like ideological polarization or like issue polarization, and then there's affective polarization, right? There, there's like how yeah. much the parties you know will vote with each other, will vote across the will vote across the aisle, and how much they uh, hate each other. So I think that like you know Marjorie Taylor Greene will like continue to hate AOC, but but may like vote together to like cu- cut Ukraine aid, right? Yeah, or like actually, I don't know. I don't know if AOC wants to cut Ukraine aid anymore. Probably not, right? Like, yeah, yeah. There are definitely but, people but like, in the You know what I mean, right? Like, mm-hmm. th- there's going to be more factionalization. I agree with you. The kind of like ideological, there's going to be like ideological depolarization, right? Because on on a lot of issues, like the factions will just, you know, happen to agree, even if they're from different parties. I think that's just what happens when you get more variance. So when it comes to that, I agree with you. But I think, like, despite that, despite, like, voting with Marjorie Taylor Greene more, like, AOC will still hate her, right? And, like, vice versa. The, the like, the, the spirit for shared governance, the enthusiasm for shared governance, and I think here, like, especially, like, the big change is going to be within the Democratic Party, is only going to drop. It's going it, it, to, it's, like, this is peak, you know, or, like, we've already passed peak, like, centralization, right? And, and, yeah. and I should say, like, even though I think, like, the cause is pretty different, you know, like, and, I, and I'm, like, bearish on Bitcoin. I, I, I do give, like, Balaji a lot of credit for this, for, like, just saying, you know, like, that this is a very, this is a phenomenon that's very local, that's very specific to our time and place. And if you just look across history, this is just, like, nonsense. And, and that I definitely do, you know, give him a lot of credit for. Indeed. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, yeah, I think we've, we've come to agreement here. We've come to agreement. Um... Yeah, we were talking about we were talking about like the downstream, uh, you know, the machine learning regime change, and that in of itself, you know, like so. So another idea from Balaji is that we went from kind of being separated across geographic space to being separated across you know idea space, 
right? Like the, mm-hmm. the social networks of two people living in the same apartment building might be like completely detached, right? Right, deterritorialized. De- 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 yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, totally. I, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I just, I, I'm also bearish on on Bitcoin and and network state and so forth. <laughs> maybe, maybe, uh, maybe someday. But um, one, one, one place I, I uh, align a lot with uh, with Balaji is is um is this view of sort of history running in reverse. Yes, yes, right? that, that's and, a beautiful idea. Yeah, and it, and it has a sort of physical basis, right? Um, in the yeah, same for the for the for the listeners. Actually, I, I don't know. I feel like the listeners would be free into um, Balaji thoughts. Um, but yeah, hi- history of running reverse. Uh, basically, the idea is that the 1960s were peak polarization. You had all the incentives leading up to a bigger and bigger state. Now you have more and more localization and factionalization since 1960s. So very similar to what we've been talking about. Sorry, continue. Right. And in the same way that we talked about sort of that also being the high watermark for mass media. Um and then you know, with with talk radio and then cable and the, and the internet, and now uh, now you can imagine with AI, like you know, the the destruction of like local journalism could reverse because you could have like one person with a team of of uh, AI article writers, <laughs> and investigative journalists, and so forth. Um, that you know, we're, we're, the the media has begun to fragment. Um, and it's fragmenting in a way that kind of rhymes with the way the media landscape was before the era of mass media, when, when you you had a lot of like tabloid journalism and like fake news um, in the 1800s. Like the the barrier was that you know you're disconnected by distance, and so you didn't. Um, it was hard to know if Abraham Lincoln really said that thing that he was quoted as saying, um, and 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 journalism was much more overtly political um and we're kind of with modern technology we're kind of reverting like we're we sort of climbed a hill to mass media and now we're going back over the the hill on the other side um and seeing a lot of things from that earlier period reemerge, but in a new form um right and it's it's very it's, 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 it's very reminiscent of this like very common statistical mechanical process where, you know, like it, with the, uh, with like an Ising model or something like that in physics where you have like magnets, <laughs> right. And the magnets are all aligned and that's like perfectly ordered, but then you, you add noise and the magnets start to, to jumble around. And then in the middle period, they're like perfectly disordered or, or it's like the most complexity. It's like, um, it's, it's like, uh, impossible to tell what's going on maximum complexity, but then you keep increasing the order and then you get like pure white noise and, and like the maximum entropy and the low, the minimum entropy states look very similar in the sense that they're both like highly ordered in a, in a way, or both, they're both homogenous in a way. Right. Right. They're very predictable. Right. They're very predictable. And so, and so if you think about this in terms of transaction costs, there was sort of, um, a, the, the, the way technology developed in the mid 20th century was biased towards centralization because it was sort of transaction costs falling uh, on one side of the scale. And now transaction costs are falling on the other side of the scale and they're bringing back the balance that reigned before the rise of the modern nation state. Right, right. But, but the amazing thing here is that you know, basically before it went from destruction being very easy and cheap 
to now creation as being very easy and cheap. And that these are kind of like the, you know, going back to the magnet point, it almost results in like, it results in something that like definitely rhymes, right? Especially in the transition process. Because, you know, like before, it wasn't necessarily that like, you know, when you had kind of like settler states, it was that, you know, it was very different. It was very difficult to enforce the kind of rule of law that led to large centralized institutions, right? Mm-hmm. And then now, you know, the rule of law is still being enforced, but the central the institutions are decentralizing because like the cost of creation is dropping, right? That's like the fascinating right. thing. But also a lot of the sort of economies of scale and scope that led to, you know, Napoleonic codes and civil law and like standard setting bodies. So we all use the same uh, meter stick and so forth. You know, that, that was a kind of uh, economizing on transaction costs, right? Because if we're all speaking with the same official French grammar book, <laughs> we'll understand each other better. Um, but, uh, you know, whereas you know, prior to that kind of Napoleonic, post-Napoleonic phase, um, you know, you could be in different townships, like 100 miles apart and have like completely different dialects, right? Um, and now I think we're returning to something like that where because, you know, deep learning and like LLMs are like universal translators, right? And so they're able to translate between your meter stick and my meter stick. Um, they're, they're, they're sort of enabling a kind of recontextualization where uh, the lowest common denominator kind of standard setting functions uh, have, have lost their uh, functionality. Yeah, so, so if we look at like, if we look at peak centralization as also being like peak conformity, you know, th- this is something that's that that I think is like fascinating and can only be kind of read. You know, history can only be interpreted um, looking back. You know, um, is that like boomerism, hippieism was just this like huge color revolution. It was such an act of conformity of going along with like the TV, going along with the current thing. Like it just was not. It was not, you know, it was not a counterculture. It was the formation of a culture. It was the creation, you know, of like a u- unifying narrative. It was the creation of, you know, um, the boomer truth regime, right? It was, mm-hmm. you know, it was this huge centralizing thing. And like like that, that in and of itself feels like a very important distinction to draw, a very important kind of like reading to this. Right. I don't know. I, I don't know where, like, I, I guess the thing that we keep returning to with all of these observations is that, you know, we are, we are exiting a kind of very, very specific, very odd, very strange compl- combination of circumstances. And we're going to something that is much more, um, that at least follows many more patterns in most of history. Yeah, and I think is in some ways like self similar with the universe, right? Like, <laughs> um, you know, now like, talking, yeah. <laughs> you know, like quantum physics. Uh, you know, in classical physics, you have like a, a phase space, a state, and it maps to the phase space, right? Like a Hamiltonian, and and you can think of the the phase space as like a real number line, right? And you could okay. assign you could you could assign like you know energy value, whatever, whatever, you're, whatever you're modeling in your physics with quantum physics. The main thing that changes is you replace the real number line with, with something where the, 
where um, instead of the numbers being fixed, they, they vary by context, right? Um, yeah, the complex circle. Yeah, but even even more than just complex numbers, like they like they they vary by context. So, you know, uh, you know, if you're a particle that's accelerating, will perceive a magnetic field. Where if you're if you're stationary, you you'll perceive an electric field and so forth. Like, um, like the there's no ob objective fixed sort of uh, Newtonian Cartesian uh, Cartesian coordinate system that like is true for everybody. Um, there everything is local, right? Quantum, quantum numbers are, are, are preserved locally. And, um, and there's something very similar in society where, you know, we, we have, you know, prior to modernization, uh, an immense diversity of languages. In some ways, those languages are the same, right? In some ways, they're, they're sort of a, like, a, a, a gauge transformation from, from, from one language to another, because they're both both referring, they're both mapping to some, uh, some common sort of set of semantics. Um, but, uh, but depending on where you are on the manifold that is earth, um, the, the linguistic, uh, the linguistic form that that meaning is carried through changes. And, 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 you know, one way you can think of it, the sort of, sort of French revolution rationalist sort of modern modern era was this imposition of a of a you know Cartesian coordinate frame right a kind of fixed reference frame for everybody we have you know a lingua franca right and we all um instead of you know it's, it's sort of like this like denial of like special relativity <laughs> in a way right that, that, that all these all these things are are all we're always relational um, but we, but we, for a period, it was cost effective to pretend that there was this one fixed coordinate frame that we could all reference. Um, and now we're moving back into a world where with, with AI, where we can recontextualize and we can, we can act almost more like quantum particles where, <laughs> where uh, all our properties are local. Um, and they, they may, they may be completely incompatible with other people's values, languages, beliefs, and so forth. Um, but we have a means of translating, of mapping between different contexts. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that was too, uh, uh, to do. I, I think in many cases, <laughs> this is almost like an anti-analogy, right? Like, like most I, th people I think it's, I think it's actually really physics, deep, but they can see it like in real life. Right. Yeah, I, I do think it's it's deep in the sense that it, you know, it establishes legitimacy. It establishes like reason. It establishes like truth. Um, but I think like for for the normal person, it's like easier to see this in their everyday life, right? So so you see this in your everyday life by essentially seeing, you know, like, well, let's say that you only have one clean well in your entire town. You know, con whoever controls that clean well, you know, might as well be might as well be the king, you know, might as well be the mayor, you know, you, you all have to gather around the clean well. And quite frankly, you know, you have to, you have to engage in a kind of conformity. The social game is very different when, you know, you have the one and, you know, I say clean well here, but it's not very hard to imagine the clean well being something else. It can be, you know, the, the, the $1 store, it can be the one, the one church, you know, it can be a literal town hall, very many, you know, 
I, I'm not sure if you've lived in a smaller community. Very many, like, ironically, like, we, we look at cities as these, like, very centralized large machines. I often, like, it, it, it's weird. Like, when you have, like, a small, a smaller or, like, maybe, like, a medium-sized town, it's almost, like, much worse, mm-hmm. in my opinion. The, the social game there is much, it, it's just so much worse. Uh, oh, yeah. And in, in some way, like, that is the social game of the of, of like 1960s America, right? Well, it's a, it's a social game that feels worse because you didn't pick it and you don't have an option to pick something else. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, I agree, Where, I agree. Whereas what I'm saying and, is like, you know, I look out my window and it's sunny where I'm at. You might look out your window and it's raining, right? Um, but in the future, you know, I'll be in a metaverse, <laughs> <laughs> and uh and i'll look up yeah did, did you and see i can the choose lex, whether um yeah did you see the lex um uh, mark zuckerberg thing um yeah yeah we'll be we'll be doing a we'll be doing a video interview but it won't actually be you know it won't actually be video or like it won't actually like just be video it'll look like it'll look you know exactly excuse me it'll look exactly like you know an, an irl conversation Right, but more importantly, what I what 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 I, what I would be seeing is up to me. I could I could make you into a lizard, right? And right, you, right, and, exactly, and, exactly. And I, could, I could be speaking English, and you could be speaking French. Um, but in our own worlds, we'll be able to still communicate because we'll have a whole layer. We'll have like we'll be surrounded by these codexes that are constantly style transferring and 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 translating and sort of doing kind of coordinate transformations into our own reality. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So so this is something that has yeah, that does very little analog in the present, right? But in many cases has, you know, historical analogs. Um even something like the old way of dealing with time time differences, right? We we can think of it now, you know, like maybe that's that's like one like very elementary analog, right? Yeah. Um are you, are you even like ET? Are you in Eastern time right now? Yeah. Okay, that's unfortunate. But like, let, let's say you were in California time. Let's say you were in California. Or let's say I was in California, right? Then, then, then to me it would be, uh, to me it would be eleven uh, around the time of recording, and, and for you it'd be like two, right? Right. That's kind of the same deal, but you know, instead of it just being like the number on your clock, it's like right. We 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 sort of have our local re- aesthetic, our local reality, right? In, in the same way that you know. Um, you know, going back to my, my, my physics metaphor, uh, and, and the, the, the contrapositive of this is like, you know, the, ex, the sort of extension of moder, mod, um, modernism, you know, the t- modernism taking to its logical conclusion is that we all speak Esperanto and we're all in the same global standard time. And there's, <laughs> there's actually like economists, I forget the name of the economist, but they, they, uh, they, they have lobbied for the universal adoption of one time zone. Um, <laughs> and, that, and that's, that's like, you know, that's us being in the Newtonian world where we're, where we're all sort of, we're all have like one fixed reference frame. Um, it's like the, and so like, there's, there's like in the normative and, 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 uh, physical worlds, like there's a sort of parallel between like having your quantum contextuality your your sort of local reality that, uh, can map to other people's realities, but is, is your own locally. Um, to a kind of recognition of pluralism, right? That that people people vary. 
Yeah, yeah. And and what's what's great about this is that you know many times I, I don't think this is quite the case with you, but with many guests on the show, uh they're kind of identical frameworks with very different justifications. I think this also happens this is also something that happens across history, right? You have a kind of like poetic justification for something. Someone writes a poem or someone studies like the Bible and comes to like some conclusion. And then like many years later, you know, you replicate this. This is kind of like Gerard's thing, right? You replicate this with, you know, either empirical studies or, you know, economic models. You do you come to exactly the same conclusions. You come to exactly the same models. But the language is very different. The mechanics yeah. at, at least like appear very different, you know. Um, w- w- when, you know, when you're reading over, you know, uh, poetry or whatever, it, it reads very differently. And these just, you know. And so this, this connects back to our AI, AI conversation because, um, uh, you know, in math, this, this phenomenon arises in math, right? Where you'll have a bunch of things that are proven in number theory and a, a whole other discourse related to, you know, geometry, and and different kinds of theorems in geometry and they're we have totally different notation totally different language and then some algebraic ge- geometer comes along and says actually these are both the exact same theories but projected out into a different context yeah yeah very right and, they, and and they and they're bridged by like there's some there's the, the real thing is some like classifying space of like like some some invariant that you're both just developing different expressions and different vocabularies to describe that variant and this this is as best as I can understand why deep learning is as as powerful as it is, right? And you know why say like uh, large language models like ChatGPT are such good universal translators, uh, multilingual translators, even though they didn't ha- necessarily have a bunch of paired text, so they can have a bunch of like English words next to Urdu words, so they can know how to translate between them. Rather, you know, maybe one percent of the corpus was in Urdu, but because they discover the semantic representations that are kind of a- alingual, like the, the deeper invariants in our semantics, they're able to develop maps between languages, even if, even if the data is sparse. Um, I think that, I think there's something really profound to that because it's also, uh, it's also going to affect how the world is organized. Right. How will it affect how the world is organized? Well, going back to what we were talking about, we won't, we don't need a lingua franca. Like once you have, you know, the next generation of meta smart glasses that uh, <laughs> that uh, uh, have you know the real time translation and will even like project uh, the lip syncing on the person's face. Like, why would you learn Mandarin? You don't need to know Japanese to to visit Japan, you know, and vice versa. Like, we'll we will have one common language while while still speaking our own language. Because we'll right. be ma- we'll be mapping in and out of these sort of higher structures that that were hidden and latent all along. Right, right, yeah. Th- this is this is great. This is great, and you know, like we, we can look at this in linguistic space. You know, someone speaking English or French or Japanese. Um, we can also look at this in idea space, right? We can look at this at in in, in terms of interpretation, in terms of you know, tradi- not not just tradition and like what your family does, but in kind of like academic traditions, you know, history versus um, economics, 
versus um didn't know physics yeah this this is this is right. fascinating like a, a natural law theorist would say that like you know the reason why so many cultures like independently discovered the golden rule or something like that is because there's there's certain um uh, sort of invariants structured in, in how we relate socially and different cultures develop different vocabularies to express those variants. And so we end up thinking that there's all this, um, all this disagreement and all this sort of like cultural particularity that can't mesh, but it actually can mesh because it's, it's the, there's, these are sort of like images or projections of, of something that we have in common. See, so I think like, the the best way of framing where I think this approach succeeds and where I think it doesn't, or or not necessarily that it doesn't succeed, but doesn't, you know, change things, is uh, confusion versus anger. So I think that in our in our conversation, um, there there were some points in which this happened, right? We had had like similar frameworks for working things out, and we just kind of like disagreed on the terms. Or disagreed on like how we how we model it, but we kind of have the same you know underlying thing that we're describing. Yeah. Our reaction to that was like confusion, right? I was just like, <laughs> you know, you know, what, what do you mean by this? I think I literally asked asked that you know several times in this conversation already. And then there's another reaction which is anger or you know polarization, Th- thinking like reveal being exposed to someone's values and reacting in kind of direct opposition to them right Right. um just just like you know a a value that um to to one person is a you know an aesthetic good is something that they intrinsically value you know and to one is an aesthetic evil right something that they intrinsically want to remove in the remove from the world or at least remove from their field of vision swipe left swipe swipe left if you vote for trump (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 exactly exactly um (laughs) <laughs> i mean we can talk about dating later um well i mean you know in some ways the 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 good old boy that says swipe left if you vote for biden like these are the same people <laughs> these are the same people but they're sort of like different limits of uh of some of some of some mathematical theorem that they have in common they're they're both just i don't think so like okay <laughs> you know like if you were you know, like if if they were given, you know, two like very different kind of practical, you know, you can only draw isomorphism so far. You know, you can only draw the parallels so far. You can only say they're they're recapitulating the same thing so far. You know, like the the truth is, you know, one of them would pers- prefer, you know, like a like a kind of more um, traditional society where things don't really change. There's not there's not as much you know, celebration of what they would consider degeneracy of, you know, sexual <laughs> improprieties, so on and so forth. Right. And, you know, the other person would be much more happy in a kind of, you know, more, more liberal society, much more, a more liberal with, society that, you know, uh, me too is people and has like Victorian honor codes. <laughs> sure. I mean, sure. There, I mean, there's a deeper, I don't know. This is like the classic plot of every rom-com, right? Um, (laughs) They they hate each other and then they are secretly, you know, on the same, you know, you got mail uh, dating app and they're, they, 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 uh, 
Yeah, yeah, this is like the Western story, right? The the Western story is like enemies to lovers. The Eastern story is like friends to lovers. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of believe in like real values disagreement much more. Like, I, I think that you, you're right on something like, even like the Me Too thing. I think it's very, it, it's very interesting because it's much more, um, it's much more reactive, right? It's about like reality acknowledging you. Whereas um, the conservative version is much more preventative. Um, I actually got into this a long time ago with, uh, do you know Nils Gilman? Yeah. Like the, the energy Beru- writer? The Berugan Beru- guy? Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, we got into this. Like, I was just like, you know, if you want to prevent rape, then just like ban alcohol. This is like, so, this is like very well known. Right. Uh, you don't have to do this like civil rights tribunal stuff. Just, just literally, just ban alcohol. You'll solve the problem. All right, and, and Democrats, like, lo- Democrats love banning things. So uh, you know, the, it, the the if it's new puritanism, it could also be a new temperance movement. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah. And Niels is a good example because I, he he was also and with Berugan, the folks behind the Transition Integrity Project, right? That had a whole game plan that if Biden lost the election um that uh you know california would would secede and become the like the country <laughs> a new country or something like that and they, <laughs> they, they, they had this whole sort of coup d'etat framework that was like directly parallel to like the claremont uh people's uh model they just had like their it looked like their values were inverted but um but you know it does it does seem like you know, they're like one coordinate transformation away from being the same people. And, th- and I think this is like the essence of it. I'm not saying it's easy for people in these different polls, these different kind of limits of like M theory or something like that to, to realize that they're actually the same theory. Um, sure. I, I think it's actually quite hard, but I think that's actually like gets to the essence of what, you know, small L liberalism should aspire to be right. What it, what it, it's supposed to be um is this like ability to shift perspective um you know in the same way so there's a famous quote from uh pierre bale the 17th century uh french liberal and it's he said um if it should thus suddenly cross the mufti's mind to send some of his missionaries to the christians just as the pope sends such to india and some were to surprise these Turkish missionaries in the process of forcing their way into our houses to fulfill their duties converting us. That then I do not believe we would have we would the authority to punish them. Um so <laughs> what he's getting at is like, you know, we're sending our Christian missionaries over to India to convert people. And and if they sent their if if the Turkish missionaries were sent here and, and started converting converting us, we would we wouldn't like that, right? And so it's this it's this ability to sort of pull back, right, from your model your concrete model to the abstract thing that's invariant and then project back down to someone else's model and realize these are the same models that that i think is actually the thing that the liberal idea was trying to get across the issue <laughs> the, the issue is that liberalism in america has uh you know left that left that uh, original core idea behind um but i think it's i think plural, pluralism and value pluralism still um expresses what what that it what the, the core insight there and, and perspective taking. Yeah, that's great. That's great. 
And I mean, you know, like we 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 don't agree on this, you know. I still own pluralism.ai, you know. <laughs> um yeah, yeah. Right. So So like we we've been focusing on all the all the positives here. I think we should we should be making the white pill case. That should be like the the direction we're trying to persuade people. But you know, there are various um various concerns that people have. Um do you want to talk about uh, the apocalypse first, or do you want to talk about uh, totalitarianism first? Uh, apocalypse now. Okay, okay, great, great. <laughs> um, why won't AI kill everyone? Why won't it? I don't know if it will or not. Um, oh, interesting, interesting. So, so, so like, there's some chance that it just kills everyone. Yeah, I put pretty low odds on the Yukowski kind of vision of, um, you know, you do one last training run, and it uh, it learns how to build a nano lab in its in the ionic binds of the computer chip or something like that. Ionic bonds. I, I don't. I don't actually understand how that's supposed to happen. Um, because these models are, you know, they are physically embodied, <laughs> and uh, and even even the most powerful super intelligence doesn't can't spontaneously figure out how to like you know, use cosmic rays to, to break out or something like that. So, uh, there are, there are very silly versions of X risk, but, um, you know, generality is a very double-edged sword. Like the, the more our, the more our systems develop actual genuine, gen, genuinely general intelligence, um, the more that by definition, they'll do things that are far outside their distribution. Right. And yeah, for sure. And the more that they'll, um, you know, I, the, separate from the alignment problem, you know, the more we have to worry about just diffusion and proliferation of systems that people will choose to align in ways that are harmful uh, to to society at large. And you know, we're compute constrained at the moment, but we will have systems in our lifetimes that, uh, you know, have a humanity's worth of compute. To, to run a model on. Um, and we have no idea what, what an intelligence with that am amount of uh, uh, compute at its, at its uh, fingertips um, will do or think. Um, I do think that, you know, there, our ability to predict is limited by our own computational boundedness. And so, uh, uh, you know, if you, ha if you had a model that was strictly more powerful, bigger than my brain and could model my brain, then it could anticipate everything I do. Um, so I, I, I don't. I, I, it's hard for me, therefore, to put zero percent on extra risk. And I think, I think, if sort of integrating across all existential risks, risks, I think having a, a relatively high, you know, ten or twenty percent extinction rate for um, the century is is not unreasonable. Right. So. <clears throat> There's always the question with people who are like EA adjacent, which is like, if you think there's even like a small chance of X risk, why why isn't like your entire life about X risks, right? So why isn't it? I mean, I did change jobs to work on AI safety, so <laughs> uh, fair enough. Fair enough. And you know, there's only so much a person can do. There's also a fog of war. You know, it's not clear 
what kind of interventions could even help. Um, it's also not clear what exactly the, uh, the specific threat model is. Um, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier that like some things are, you can, some things are easier to predict than others. You know, I, I can predict, I know for a fact that human civilization is going to end at some point. Right. And I know for a fact that in a few billion years, the sun is going to expand and turn into a, a red dwarf star or whatever and envelop the earth. Um, and so I have like insanely high or insanely narrow confidence uh, or margin of error on that prediction. Like I, even though that's 2 billion years from now or whatever. Um, and so, you know, it, I think it's, it's possible to say that it's possible to make a prediction and a well-grounded prediction that something very bad could happen without knowing specifically how it's going to happen. And I know that's uh, unsatisfying for um, people who want concrete details and part of the, and that's part of what makes it such a hard problem. Um, and it may just be this like bottleneck that, that all advanced civilizations eventually pass through and that there's very little that you can do to stop it because of it being a kind of auto catalytic process. That that's, a, right. that that's well within the realm of possibility. So, um, that's like the Nick land view too, right? Like, you know, <laughs> the yeah, we land. have to get into the, we have to see the ending cutscene. and it might be a good ending, might be a bad ending, but we have to get there. Right. Or maybe we turn into like the literal matrix, right. Where we're all jacked into, we're all, uh, wired into a computer or maybe we just don't exist at all. And so we just, the earth is covered in sentient computers. Um, and I know some people who, for whom that's like a genuinely positive outcome. Hmm, interesting. So I think you touched on uh, the next idea, the, the matrix or something like it. Uh, in, in many cases, right, in, in many cases, there, there was this paper, actually, there was this, like, paper from, I think, like, some major AI safety org that was, like, the, the challenges to, to regulating AI. <laughs> and the challenges were basically First Amendment rights, and the fact that people can distribute code online. Right. Um, you know, in many I mean, the, cases, fact that, the fact that this is linear algebra, right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. So people will, exactly. but, but, you know, quantum mechanics is also linear algebra. Every, the, the world, the universe is linear algebra. So it's a very trivial thing to say. Um, but what it, what it means. Guns are linear algebra. <laughs> that will be that. Yeah, so I mean, you know, the bras and cats and whatever. Um, yeah, but you know, it, like code is covered. Code is covered under the First Amendment. Um, you know, open source code. People posting stuff online. There were early wars about cryptography. It turns out, you know, you can just publish, you know, cryptography algorithms in a book, or yep. or now on a website. You know, there's nothing the government can do about that. Um, in many cases, you know, like talking about regime change, uh, if if the if the goal is to contain these things, you know, regime change of a very severe and, you know, quite frankly, you know, Chinese nature uh, is necessary, right? Uh, or just inevitable. Like, I don't want to put a normative baggage on it. But, um, yeah, I mean, in, in my modal prediction is that because of these uh, these sort of 
self-tying constraints that liberal liberal dem democratic government governments are under constitutional constraints um our laws and civil rights um the various procedural constraints that you know to the extent that there is a um a propensity for AI to lead to things like social credit scores and surveillance states and so forth, that that will be pushed into competing private hands. Um, and obviously we, you know, we've seen, we already have examples of this in the, in the sense that, you know, the reason Uber and Lyft are so effective is because they have a social credit score, right? And it's, it's not, it's not going to, uh, it's, it's sort of siloed in the context of ride hailing. But if you're a terrible writer, you will get a one-star rating and eventually you will get kicked off the platform. Um, and and so to the, to the extent that AI creates a variety of uh, negative externalities, um, you know, you can, like, for example, you easily see the, the kind of dual use, double-edged nature of facial recognition and, you know, having general models of, with the sort of understanding of the world, you could, Take them. Take today's multimodal models. They're already using this in, in, for drones. You can put them into a, a drone and give it a text-based instruction that says, you know, find the, the the safest flight path to put up the wildfire, and it can it can understand that context, contextual meaning, um, and navigate to the wildfire in a way that avoids, you know, damage. Um, and there's, you know, once you have that, and once that's open source, there's nothing stopping you from saying fly to my uh, my ex-girlfriend and drop a grenade on her <laughs> or whatever. Um, uh, and, I, and I do think, like, you know, uh, Matt Iglesias had this uh, piece last year um, arguing that the Terminator scenario uh, is underrated, like the, the literal Terminator scenario. Because um, we are going to have machines that are, like, like very low-cost robotics with open-source models that don't require really any barrier to entry to, to use and operate um, that we could imprint and, and that will, you know, not just, you know, do Boston dynamics kind of tricks, but like be like, you know, be like a elite sports, esports gamer <laughs> in, in its agility um, and evasion tactics and so forth and, and ability to anticipate um, all, all that stuff is coming. And the only way that, we can manage that is uh, is through if, you know, if if the First Amendment and so forth does tie the hands of government to to regulate that core technology, um, then I do think the onus shifts to uh, sort of company towns and and sort of private cities that that build in uh, protections against those kind of external threats. Right. So, so you see an increasing, you know, like you, you will live in Uberville. Yeah, you will live in Uberville. It, 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 you know, this isn't some people will, will, will think this like this techno feudalist future is like per se bad. Um, I think, you know, it could be pretty amazing. It could be a new renaissance. But but what it, it's getting at is, um, you know, if you do think there's a value into having um a you know a public sphere uh, an open society with sort of you know lower level jurisdictions but we're all part of one common entity um then 
then it is this it is this trade-off like there are things that will seem like they are infringing our liberty you know for example you know limits on what you can open source um but will in some sense be preserving liberty because if they're allowed to be open source there's a race to the bottom and a kind of prisoner's dilemma dynamic that leads to a world where uh you know life is nasty brutish and short unless we submit to a different kind of leviathan maybe a leviathan of our choosing but still a leviathan nonetheless and 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 you know uh in liberal society liberal societies are, are open only at the meta level you know we we have our fair share of paternalism and social regulation and so forth. It's just offloaded onto private entities. Um, and private entities can be extremely draconian in a way, in ways that we'd, we'd uh, pull back from if it was, if it was the state, you know, employers can monitor your every move to maximize productivity. Uh, you know, churches can deny you a membership if you aren't following their creed. Um, and and so you know to the I, I I think there's like a huge value actually sometimes to social regulation and social credit scores and and surveillance, um, and there will be increasing value to those things in the world of AI, um, and our options may not be no social credit score or 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 one social credit score, but our options may look more like um, you know the singleton social credit score or a diversity of social credit scores. Right. And you said that you disagree with Bology on network states. I don't know. Uberville sounds like a startup city to me, right? It sounds, you know, like, what, what, where's the distinction? Uh, well, no, I, I think a kind of, well, I think these are geographically co-located, right? So, I, you know, I think, um, okay. I, I think, you know, one of the public goods will be security, and like the and security and public order is like the is like the the primeval public good right it's like the the these it's the the first thing you need the prerequisite to build everything else on top of um and there will be you know agglomeration economies it's easier to protect people if they all live in one area uh and you know to build firewalls around and so forth um I, I think there could also still be like deterritorialized de network state style things. I, 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 what I don't, what I, the two things I have with Balaji's thesis that I, I struggle with is first of all, making the leap that like web three and Bitcoin is actually going to be the the medium for this. Um, I, I think, you know, crypto is cool and all, but it doesn't, it, it's, it's, it's really not that special <laughs> and there's no particular reason why you need to have a, uh, you know, these kind of proof of work protocols to, to build the stuff on. Um, and, and then the second thing is like, uh, uh, making the move from, you know, merely being deterritorialized people who are like on the same discord server to, um, to having, you know, common public goods and so forth, uh, is a pretty big leap if you're genuinely, um, in different parts of the world, uh, it's hard. It, it, it's not even clear that you you would need need to build a state if you're in different parts of the world. Because, okay, yes, you want you maybe submit to some common um, uh, you know dispute resolution mechanisms for your internal disputes, 
but you don't need police. You don't need public roads. You don't <laughs> like all the things that we tr sort of associate with, uh, with governments, um, don't really apply if you're, if you're dispersed geographically. Yeah, it's right. So the formation, so like the formation will be much more like, you know, it will just be legacy players, but it will just be existing companies. It might be like, you know, it might be, you know, Uberville. Yeah, you might have like Google uh, having its own city. It's much more of an extension of the existing business process versus like this new, like decentralized crypto thing. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Essentially, I think the private sector and, and in particular sort of tech companies uh, have the talent and the know-how and the ability, the vertical integration you need to build AI native defensive technologies um, and to create like a Cupertino or, you know, maybe Salt Lake City will become the, the Mormon <laughs> city state or something like that. No, um, the Mormon fortress. Right, or or that uh, uh, Solano County, just outside of SF, that uh, Andreessen Horowitz and Patrick Carlson, a bunch of investors have, have bought up all the agricultural land, and they're planning to build, uh, you know, a a vertically integrated city with you know multifamily walkable neighborhoods. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. Like, I don't know. I kind of like. The only thing I, I, I'm worried about there is that, you know, like, you won't be able to keep the centralized... Man it's almost like the opposite thing of the Balji worry, right? That, you know, it won't be centralized enough, you know, like, that should be, uh, let, let's say, uh, more monarchical uh, rather than uh, rather than democratic. Yeah, well, that, that, I mean, that's, the, that's why it rhymes with feudalism. And, you know, this is just history running in reverse even further um, and getting back to a world of like small principalities where there's a lot of genuine diversity and uh, in governance styles and, um, and, you know, kind of PVP zones in between. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's this like, so where we agree with the Bology framework is that we think there'll be like polarization or like factionalization, let's say, if we don't want to use polarization, there'll be factionalization in idea space. And there'll be, you know, there'll be these kind of like, not necessarily startup cities, but like big tech cities. So, so like, how does the ideological filtering or like the, the factionalization translate into the organization of the startup cities or of the, of the big tech cities? It's super hard to predict. I mean, probably they're Pareto distributed like everything else. Is. <laughs> um, uh, there's probably going to be some places that are incredible um, that have like strong filtering and, uh, uh, and other places that are a little more anarchic or, or look more like uh, shanty towns. I mean, this is sort of, you know, Neil, St Neil Stevenson kind of world, but um you know, I think I think the reason Stevenson's uh, sci-fi ends up being kind of prescient in often case in often cases is because he he's writing from a background in economics and um, and is very fluent with the debates in you know anarcho-capitalism and uh, the you know, private governance and so forth. So he he's able to envision the structural forces that w could lead to that kind of world. And so um, you know, my mental model is is very like Snow Crashian. 
right? Where you know, Snow Crash is like this this uh, Los Angeles where like everyone lives in in gated communities. Oh, so, so the thing that I thought you were going to say is that uh, Neil Stevenson will be right because the people who are going to build it will be reading Neil Stevenson. <laughs> like that's one way to be correct about your predictions, right? Just make sure the people who are who are uh, well, no one's, this is spontaneous order. No one's no one's designing the this at the meta level. This is how things I think just shake out. Um, with, it's how things shake out in the context of a, of a a government that um has various legal and constitutional and other barriers to going the China route. Because I think there will I think like without all that artifice of constitutional protections and limit limited government i think really the political economy of a post agi world is like a gulf state monarchy right because if you look at the gulf states they're already living in a post scarcity world right they the the saudi royal family has like infinite money they're doing mega projects in the desert um you know most of what their quote unquote work is is like meetings and conferences <laughs> and and like soft bank style investments into BC, um, and uh, and because of all that abundance, it also has this, you know, immense amount of you know, explicit and normative social regulation, like Wahhabism, mm. right? Um, and in the case of like places like Qatar, you know, that it, it it does sort of divide into you know, you're the citizen or you're like the guest worker that's building the stadium. Right. And, and in the future, those guest workers will be AIs. Right. So, so that those, those Gulf state monarchies look an awful lot like a post-scarcity world to me. Um, and are probably our closest, uh, reference point for like what, what the political economy of AGI looks like. Right. But. And, and so in, in, in our context, like we're going to have like an archipelago of little Gulf state monarchies. <laughs> Yeah, so, so something that comes up, you know, often when discussing uh, not just the Gulf states but similar countries is the resource curse, right? Right. Um, Teal Teal pointed to the tech curse that you know the more technological progress, especially concentrated technological progress you have, the worse the governance will be. Well, I mean, the main the main resource curse is is. Um is that if you're able to just turn on an oil spigot, you don't invest in labor productivity and education and so forth. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, that, that, that it's very easy to see how AI does that, right? Like um, a, to first order, a post AGI world is one where um, we could have pretty rapid depreciation in human capital because you don't need to acquire skills, you know, um, the AI does it for you, uh, and so I, I think in, in some ways the like the Wahhabism is a kind of compensation for that. <laughs> um, it, it's sort That's of where the virtue comes from. Yeah, it's a sort of re- reinstatement of, of uh, social virtue, but also in, our, in in an AI world that that virtue includes like you know not um, uh, you know very strict social regulation against you know bringing your cell phone into areas because your cell phone. Uh, is a listening device that can like be a key logger if you want it to be or, 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 or what have you. Um, yeah. Right. 
So, so, so the reason why, so there's two reasons why, you know, you don't think AI will be a resource curse is one, that it, you know, it solves many of the upskilling problems that exist in existing resource rich countries. And, um, no, no, I said the opposite. Is that the only reason? Is there something else? No, I, I said the opposite. I think it, it, it is analogous to the resource curse because. Oh, interesting. Because it will let us deprecate our human capital. Like there's no point in, you know, once we have uh, AIs that can read all the math theorems and use proof assistance and so forth and just solve, solve mathematics, <laughs> like why would you go to grad school to be a mathematician? Um, and, you know, once we have AIs that uh, are like expert carpenters, why would you learn carpentry? Um, so, you know, or, or programming, like once, once you have co-pilots and, and eventually just like one click app builders and so forth, why would you bother learn uh, efficient coding uh, norms and, and best practices? Like, or, or why bother learn to code at all unless you're like at the bare metal? Um, and so, and so that does look like a resource curse because it is like AI is this like money printing machine um, that produces goods and services like a spigot and will let us deprecate our labor productivity. Um, and so we'll need, we'll need countervailing social pressures to maintain a sort of like virtuous culture, I think, or else we'll all just be lazy. Right. So I have like two, two avenues for that. And I'm kind of conflicted on which one to ask. Either is fine. So like one, one is, you know, the classic, why do we still have professional chess players? And the other is, you know, probably harder. Why do you think there are, um, or do you think actually, do, do you think there are any skills that like humans will kind of keep that, that, that will still be necessary for yeah, so I may I may be exaggerating. Like I'm talking about like marketable skills. Um, in the context of of chess, I, I love I love chess. I watch uh, uh, most of the ma ma major tournaments, and it's really fun. Especially like like speed chess because uh, it really feels like um, almost like a sport because people are making the moves faster than they really have time to calculate. Um, uh, the reason it's fun to watch is because it's other humans playing, um, and so you know I I even once we have AIs that can do in principle anything, I think we'll still have the X games, right? We'll still have that. That's one area of, of human capital that won't go away because doing, you know, playing sports and uh, riding motorcycles and um, doing fun stuff, you know, Saudis and Audis, right? They, <laughs> they love to go down the highway at 200 miles an hour. Um, you know, we'll be doing things that are sort of structured into tournaments uh, and, are ways of demonstrating skills, but they're not necessarily marketable skills. They're they're things that are fun to watch, uh, and fun and fun to do in in the in the moment. So so it's like a death of the slow boring. Yeah, the future is very is is fast and exciting. <laughs> oh, poor poor Matt. Yes, poor Matt. I, I, I don't know. I, ironically, though, like the slow boring newsletter that might be fine. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends if they're, if we're, if it's like the end of history or not, like, you know, I don't think there's many, um, political sub stacks in, in Saudi Arabia commenting on what the royal family. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. 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 No, no, we do have, okay. 
Yeah. So, so we can go on to. But I mean, uh, the, the bigger point is that is that um, w- one thing that makes humans unique and will always be unique is just our our world line, right? Our personality, our our particular perspective, and qua human. In the same way that if you had a perfect molecule by molecule replication of the Mona Lisa, it it wouldn't sell at auction. Right. Because yeah, people it, it, just have, you know, our, you know, our greatest strength is our speciesism. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I do think, I, I do think that's true. Like, our, spe- know, our, our speciesism and, and, just like, and our speciesism and our, and our continuity of, of identity. Right. You know, yeah, the well, Chinese want to know what Henry Kissinger thinks, not because he has the most profound thoughts, but because he's Henry Kissinger, right? He has a world line attached to him. Right. I mean, the doping will be crazy, right? The AI assisted doping, like, (laughs) I don't know. It will be, you know, speaking of chess, there's like, um, you you know about like the whole uh, Hans Neiman thing, right? Yeah. Should we should we explain that to the audience? Should we explain what the Hans Niemann thing is? Yeah, Hans Niemann was an up and coming or is an up and coming grandmaster, um, who uh, at the Sigfield Cup um, in November twenty two, I think um, it's an in person chess competition at, at St Louis, and he challenged Magnus Carlsen, and Magnus was on like a one hundred something winning streak, hadn't lost a game, and uh, Hans, despite being like a 19 year old, um, beat him decisively. And, uh, afterward, uh, uh, Carlson implied in an interview that he, he thought he was cheating. And the reason he thought he was cheating was because Hans had this history of cheating on online chess. Um, and then, then it then came out from chess.com, uh, chess.com released a report showing, uh, documenting that, that Hans had had indeed cheated when he was like 15, 16 across uh, a few hundred games, including games for money. Um, and that then launched, uh, Neiman launched a lawsuit, a defamation lawsuit, which just settled. Uh, but, uh, but (laughs) it opened up this big debate about cheating in chess and how easy it's gotten because of, of AI and, you know, miniaturization, you potentially have something hidden on your body and, and the, and the joke, it was mostly just a meme, was that Hans had a anal probe that, <laughs> that would vibrate to tell him which move to make. And um, there were p- some people on YouTube actually made prototypes. <laughs> oh no! But I mean, this is a this is this goes to back to like um, the kind of offloading of, of intense so- social regulation, right? Like, if you want to go to see a comedy show these days, they'll often confiscate your phone at the door because they don't want the audience filming the comedian to then turn around and put it on TikTok and potentially, you know, expose the, the comedian's jokes that they're working on for their next special or something like that. Um, and so technology is emancipating. It is liberating. It, it, it does give, give us these new capabilities, but in, in turn, it creates these negative externalities in this case, an externality for the comedian. Um, that has to be offset through things that look very draconian, like 
you never would have thought like in early 2000s, like people are going to take my phone. Like it's my phone. Um, and in this case, like, you know, cheating at chess or cheating at poker, uh, you know, especially once you, <laughs> these things are in your glasses and like basically invisible, um, it's going to require compensating by, you know, having, I don't know, RF signal blockers, <laughs> full body scans. I, I don't know, but things, things end up looking paradoxically more oppressive, uh, the more our individual capabilities expand. Yeah, I think there's this underlying, you know, fear fear of capabilities in any ways people in, in many cases people want you know, like this is the conservative instinct, right? People want a kind of not quite stagnant world, but uh actually no, I shouldn't pull my punches. There are many people who would like a stagnant world. Yeah, I mean it's just part of the trade off. It's sort of this Hobbesian trade off. Um you know, in, in a country with very strong gun control. You know, like the United Kingdom, like the cops, the cops don't even carry guns. You know, um, the famous uh, Michael Moore scene uh, in Bowling for Columbine, where he goes to Canada and is like, is walking around a neighborhood in Canada, and everyone's doors are unlocked, <laughs> and he's like, "Wow, your wow, your doors unlocked." Uh, you wouldn't that wouldn't happen in Baltimore, um, and the reason for that is because yeah, yeah, we have this this freedom, the Second Amendment, which means everyone can be packing at all times. Um, and, and that, like, that, that freedom, that capability, um, ends up making the, the society in some ways less free, uh, because we end up having, um, you know, metal detectors at schools and stuff like that. Eh, I don't, like, we, there are. You know, there are schools with that metal detectors. There are neighborhoods that are exactly the same. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not judging one way or the other whether that's a good trade-off. I'm just. It just is this. Uh, no, but but like this recurring the recurring trade-off tendency. isn't even necessarily true. Like, you know, there there are certainly areas in America that are as you know open and you know devoid of crime as any area in Canada. Oh, absolutely, but they tend to be heavily selected. Heavily, heavily sure. self-selected, self and um, uh, yeah, I, I'm, this is just you know the the easier it gets to I don't know uh, s sniff someone's credit card with like a device that you can just hide in your pocket or whatever. Like all, all these things, like the, once we have um, uh, what well, we already have, you know, systems. Uh, for uh, you know, seeing through walls, right? You know, I talk about this in my AI and Leviathan piece. You can use the displacement from Wi-Fi signals in a room um, to identify people standing in that room, and in a way that penetrates walls, right? And it right now, this is just in a research, uh, you know, file somewhere. You know, if that's on Hugging Face and anyone can download it. Um, you know, suddenly we are, our walls are invisible and, and no one can even tell if I'm snooping on someone through their wall. Um, so how do we, how do we react to that? We either ban that or we end up putting mesh in our wall to block, to block the leakage of Wi-Fi signals. Um, so maybe the 5G people are onto something. <laughs> yeah. The, the other thing is that, you know, bans will not necessarily be successful, right? Right. Maybe the bans are successful in China, but um, right. That's that's ex you're you're in, you're starting to intuit like <laughs> my mental model. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
you know, locally, locally, it'll be China. You know, that that's kind of the American way, you know. That that your uh, that that your town is like the Chinese government, but uh, yeah, your 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 uh, federal your federal government is like um, is like a Somalian government. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, exactly. maybe not quite that bad. Yeah, libertarian in the streets, communist in the sheets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so so we can move to. to <laughs> it's been two hours. We can move to the um, short term stuff. I just have written here politics of emergency. Um, right. So you had this piece betting that there would be uh, AI legislation by 2025. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if it would be legislation, but I do think there is going to be, you know, like maybe not, you know, the full, you know, Chinese style crackdown, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not I do expect that. there to be, you know, I do expect there to be like an Empire Strikes Back, you know. Yeah, that that bet is very broad. So, um, it literally, it, I, I did like a two to two to one odds, and it literally anything, like any like things dealing with deep fakes, things dealing with, uh, uh, you know, data provenance or or copyright, like basically any subcategory of AI policy. If if there is a bill that gets passed. By the end of uh, by the end of uh, twenty twenty four, actually, um, uh, then I'll win. Um, and I think, you know, so so it's it, it's sort of stacked in my favor because because <laughs> the guy I'm betting with it gave you know basically gave me like everything. Um, and I, and even if Congress doesn't pass a uh, you know specific sort of comprehensive thing, um, they always pass the NDAA and the NDAA. Uh, the most recent NDA had like 130 different mentions of AI in it. It established a new office right, in right. the State Department. So, so there's like easy vehicles to see where something like that could where where I'm going to win on that point. But my my bigger model, my bigger mental model, and the thing that this bet doesn't really represent, but um, but which I think will happen within the next 18 months is a kind of Bayesian update, right? In the same way that uh, you know, in January 2020. The only people talking about COVID were like very online, Balaji type. fans, yeah. yeah, yeah, and they were like looking at the curve, and they're like, "Oh, this is, uh, this is now uh, in Italy, and uh, you know th- these exponential trends are pretty, you know, it's only a thousand people, but like you know, give it a couple months, and it could be half the world." Um, you know, they were kind of laughed at initially. You know, you had Vox writing articles that were like, "Oh, the new tech bro trend is to not, not shake hands." how uh, those silly tech bros um but you know suddenly uh, you know tom hanks in march <laughs> it's just that's all it took it took tom hanks getting covid um and the next day uh the nba season was shut down um and uh the world health organization declared a pandemic and two weeks later congress passed the cares act which 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 was a 2.2 trillion dollar relief bill um so they went from, it went from something that you know, if you ask somebody in January, oh, the, is Congress going to pass two point two trillion dollar bills? Like, hell no! They got all these other things they're working on. The schedule is full. They have to reauthorize X Y Z. Um, but you know, it, it it's a matter of Bayesian updating. Once <laughs> once they realize that this this was the real deal, and it's happening fast, um, they pulled together and did something big. 
Um, and, and when I survey Congress in my day job, it's people have still are still completely unaware of where we're at and where things are going within this decade. Um, they sort of, they sort of, you know, they think AI is like Ebola level or something or something like that. And they're like, Oh, I've seen this before. This is just like whatever, whatever other technology that they saw come on. You know, this is like 5g or something like that. Um, uh, no, it, this is more like COVID in the sense that this is going vertical. Um, and, uh, it's in, and, and the, the sooner people update to that, the better. Um, but I think there will be a kind of Tom Hanks moment, some, something, some new capability, some new model release, um, that really wakes, wakes people up or maybe some early signs of economic impact or something like that, that really, um, uh, you know, turns everyone into a skills all you need proponent. Yeah, or I don't think it'll be like, I don't know, I don't think it'll be AI safety. I think it'll be more like, you know, quote unquote AI ethics. No, I, AI you know, ethics is a byproduct of not, of not seeing where the curve is heading. Right. A, AI ethics is a head in the sand point of view, you know. Yeah, for the audience, it's basically, you know, democratic special interests trying to, you know, do civil rights law with AI or whatever, you know, just just the most like stupid parts of politics. But if you even the most like liberal lib, if they really if they really internalized that we could have AGI this decade, they would not be concerned. They would not be talking about discriminatory mortgage loan approvals, <laughs> you know, that's just a total non sequitur. Um, and, you know, I mean, if we look at COVID uh, and we can say COVID actually was not nearly as deadly as, you know, it was initially predicted to be so on and so forth, but it, I didn't know. I believe in the kind of, you know, stubbornness, the, the stubborn attachments to their, <laughs> you know, racial narratives. Um, they're, they're bitter clingers to their civil rights law and disinformation agencies, you know? Uh, I'm not, I don't deny that. And, and I think there will be a massive Butlerian jihad when it starts coming for particular favored constituencies and occupations and so forth. But um, at, the, at the level of Congress, at the level of Congress, when you have, you know, Marsha Blackburn um, asking Sam Altman about uh, what, what his, what ChatGPT means for music royalties, Right. <laughs> you know, like, okay, I get it. She's a senator from Nashville. They have a big music industry. Um, AI is sort of like ushering in the, the twilight of copyright. It's going to be devastating for record labels, probably. Um, but, you know, that's, this is like asking Thomas Edison what electricity means for the candle maker industry. Um, it's like, yeah, they're, you're, you're, you're in a different universe. Right, you're still anchored to 40 years of stagnation. You don't understand that we're ending that 40 year stagnation, um, and that everything is going to change. Everything is going to get reshuffled. Um, and whether you, where you think that's good or bad, it requires a total reframing. In the same way that um, you know, if you found out that your wife of 40 years had a secret husband and family, and like was living this living this double life that you were totally ignorant of, that you know, it should it should be like a psychic shattering moment like where, where everything has to be reorganized and put into back into a new coherent picture of the world um and that hasn't happened yet 
Right. And so it, I think, Certainly I think not. it will, I think it will at some point. Um, but it hasn't yet. And so far people are taking Sam Altman literally seriously, but not literally. Right. When he comes to Congress and says, I'm building super intelligence, um, and it could destroy humanity. Please regulate me. They hear, Oh, this guy's building a cool new app. Um, and it could be, it could have some dangers. You know, I were, uh, you know, what, what about deep fakes? <laughs> Yeah, the the question, the duality I have is something like, will AI regime change Congress before like Congress regime changes AI? You know, like will they will they crack down first or will they like, like could open AI like get a senator elected using techno or like change the Senate race using technology? Right? They they honestly like they could probably like change the Senate race with like just just donating a lot. Right. Um, so maybe some races aren't the best example, but uh, like... the, 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 that's not even a question. Of course they could. The question is how much, how many GPUs would that be? <laughs> what's, what's the marginal value of that GPU? Um, in trying to, you know, yeah. Is there like, is there like a killer? Can, can we like throw the election to Trump somehow with this? I don't know. Like, could we throw it to could we throw it to RFK? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't think so. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that even if not not RFK, maybe maybe even DeSantis, but um, I don't know. Yeah, just just in terms of like electorally, I'm kind of kind of a doomer when it comes to DeSantis at this point. But um, yeah, I mean that's neither here or there. My timelines, my timelines are pretty short, right? So I wrote a piece um, why AGI is closer than you think, where I sort of outline my heuristics for for why I think you know we'll have like human emulators, uh, you know, this decade, and and um, uh, so so part the, the part of it is sort of trying to communicate that, but but if the shorter your timelines are. Um, the less you should worry about, uh, you know, Congress cracking down on AI and, and somehow like, you know, nipping it in the butt. Uh, you know, I think we're already basically in a slow, a slow takeoff. I don't think there's really any world outside of some very extreme, like totalitarian style backlash, um, that can, uh, stop this, this phase transition. I think at best you can delay it. And, um, and what that means is that regulation of AI is sort of a category mistake. Um, I think what we need to be focused on more is, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely room for, you know, supervisory oversight of like AGI labs and stuff like that. But, um, but it's so close that really the, the frame we should have is like bracing for impact, right? Like what things do we need to fortify now? Uh, what, what new, what agencies, not, not what, not, what not new agent, not what new agency do we need, but like what existing federal agencies are going to be completely transformed um, or obsolescent. Um, and that, that's a very different mental model. Like, you know, it's sort of like if climate change uh, operated on a 10 year timescale, um, you, you would stop debating uh, 
emissions reductions and start debating like adaptation and mitigation. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I mean, I have my disagreements with short timeline predictions in general. I just think that I don't know. I think people reacted to the ChatGPT hype cycle and kind of like projected ChatGPT releases based on, you know, like the gap from three to four. It's like, no, this is not, this is not reflective of the internal development time. This is reflective of the open AI marketing strategy. Um, and I do think a lot of it is honestly like, I don't like to point to kind of like outside factors rather than their argument. However, you know, just the amount of like the amount of doomer energy after like the ChatGPT releases, you know, it, it, it's hard to it's it, it's hard to um, discount that as a factor in my view. But um, yeah, I, I think that like everyone agrees at this point that like attempts at persuasion when it comes to timelines kind of make no sense yeah uh, you know like i should just hedge i should just not not like kind of uh not hedge in terms of like conversation or in terms of rhetoric but just in terms of like life plans but you know like and if it happens it happens if it happens and like good for us in my view yeah i, I mean if we the I'm not a doomer, despite maybe what I'm sounding like. Um, you know, I, I am more concerned about these institutional risks than like the deep X risks. And if anything, I think if there are deep X risks, um, like I don't think we get the singularity right away. Like I don't think AGI immediately leads to runaway superintelligence because it can like improve in a recursive loop. Um, and partly I, I believe that for information theoretic reasons. Um, right. Like, yeah, the, I did read the. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the the main reason to to think the AGI is near is because our brains only, only process a certain amount of a certain number of bits. Um, you can sort of put hard bounds on that. Um, the scaling laws are in AI are are quite smooth, and we're nowhere nowhere near bottoming out on them. <laughs> um, and compute is scaling up in a way that if you combine combine you know, scaling laws with compute and, uh, you know, estimates of the divergence between our ability to model distribution from, from, uh, from the ground truth, um, that we, we will have the resources to basically brute force AGI, uh, by the end of the decade. And that's, that makes an, an upper bound because obviously we don't need to brute force. We have a bunch of insights into how the brain works and into how to make models more efficient. Um, we obviously don't need to emulate the whole human brain because the brain does a lot of things that don't matter for intelligence, like digestion and, and uh, the endocrine system and all this other stuff that is irrelevant. Um, so, uh, so, but, but by the same token, once you have general systems, it, it they, they don't get arbitrarily good beyond that. Like they will be superhuman in the sense that, you know, we'll be able to run a thousand of a thousand instances of them 24 seven and they can, you know, think at, at inference speeds and, and never get tired. 
Um, they can call different kind of plugins and so on and so forth. So they will be superhuman in that sense, but they won't be unboundedly super intelligent because there will still be a limited amount of compute and therefore a limited amount of entropy that you can extract from any, any given data distribution or data stream. Um, so, so I think, you know, Ray Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil's timeline of a singularity around 2045 makes a lot more sense because that that's, that's the decade where like exascale computers are commonplace and, um, and it's possible to have like a, a, uh, humanity sized computer attached to a fusion energy reactor. <laughs> um, and, and at that point, you know, Robotics will have uh, will have will have progressed to the point where um, some of these more doomsday sort of scenarios start to seem more plausible because um, a lot of decision making will have already been handed over to AI. Yeah, I do think like okay, so, so there's several threads there. I always want to jump on the most recent one. There's yeah, there's there's. Um, yeah, c- control will voluntarily be relinquished to AI. I think, like, even if you just look at, like, you know, the TikTok algorithm, this seems obviously true. You know, like, if, if there is AGI um, or, or you know, artificial superintelligence, um, people are not going to... It's, it's not going to need to take power. People are going to just give it power. Um, right. And, so and, there, and, I, I and, agree. and my worry is again this meta risk, institutional risk that if there are X risks associated with superintelligence, they will be happening, you know, in the 2040s at the earliest, I think. Um, and at, at, in, in, in the intervening period, if we do have a regime change or some kind of state collapse or breakup, um, then we lose the ability to govern for those X, X risks. Um, and so I think it's it's my biggest complaint. With the, I mean, it, I don't think we have that ability to lose. You know, <laughs> like I think if we're gonna get you know ASI, then ASI will do what it will. You know, maybe outside of some technical alignment stuff. But uh, I've become increasingly um, not necessarily a doomer in that I think that it's likely that AI will be malicious, but. More so, like, you know, if, if there is doom, then there's not much than we can do about it, if that makes sense. Mm. I think there's a lot we can do about it. I, I think the alignment problem is probably harder than, uh, it's probably easier than people realize, or definitely what Yukowski thinks. Um, well, well, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. You know, Yukowski set a lot of his priors, uh, you know, 20 years ago when he still thought that AI would be like a very simple algorithm rather than, uh, Trillion, yeah, like semantic uh, stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, rather than a trillion parameter model. And I think intelligence needs those trillions of parameters and and, and hundreds of hidden layers. Um, uh, because complexity and high dimensionality is what gives you generality. Um, but it, you know, the path we're on now are AIs that are, in a sense, simulacra of humans in the way they think because they're trained on, on human textual data. Um, and are driven to discover latent representations that have, uh, you know, kind of parallel to the ways our our brains represent that those semantic representations. Um, and as a consequence, they're not as alien as they're often made out to be. Um, 
know, this is sort of like a, a partial defense of anthropomorphizing. <laughs> um, uh, and, I, and I don't think intelligence even necessarily implies ortho orthogonality, therefore. Um, like I put, I put like the, the two main premises of, of, uh, Yukowski's threat model are instrumental convergence and, and orthogonality. And I think there's, there's a, there's a underexplored tension between those two. Cause one says the AIs will converge with us. And the other one says that they'll be completely orthogonal to us. <laughs> um, and I, I tend to put more money on convergence because I, I think that, uh, for, intuitions I get from like category theory and, and, um, and information theory is that there are, there are certain universal representations that, that, uh, any intelligence system ends up converging on. Um, and you see this sort of, I, I mean, like in terms of those convergences, I think the main difference is that, uh, it'll be kind of a post Straussian age, right? We just won't have to lie about things anymore. Well, that is an interesting point. That gets into sort of the Hansonian, like the end of hypocrisy, um, kind of stuff, where where AI. It, explain what that is for the audience. Well, Robin Hanson's view is that you know much of human nature and human behavior, if not most, is explained through, explained by signaling and in st status games, um, and part of that is this sort of polite denial of that of what we're really doing. Um, you know, when, when in, in the Barbie movie, when Ken is playing his guitar on the beach for Barbie, <laughs> you know, you know, men, men learn to play guitar. Uh, and we tell ourselves the lie that we're doing this because we love guitar and you know, we just love rock and roll, not, not because we're, uh, trying to attract a mate or something like that. Right. So like a lot of human behavior is, has a sort of hypocritical, hypocritical component to it where we deceive ourselves to be able to better deceive others and uh, yeah. and uh you know ai as a just a general technology for like signal extraction and figuring out like what's actually going on um is also a tool for you know lifting the veil on that hypocrisy um you know you know imagine if you have uh, glasses that will tell you if the person you're talking with is interested in the conversation if they're if they're lying, if, if they're, um, bored, um, if they love you, you know, it, with your, it, all, most of human life is mediated by polite, polite dishonesty. <laughs> um, uh, and so there will have to be a choice to not, you know, to we'll have to coordinate, to not, uh, turn on our glasses that reveal who's lying all the time because we're all lying all the time. Yeah, so, so I think, you know, I don't, I, I don't think we're all lying all of the time, right? I, I think that both, there's huge variation in who is doing the lying and in uh, what times people are doing the lying. Um, yeah, the, this, this goes back to my uh, assertion that you know, conformity is bad or that, you know, consensus is bad. That's, that's the more, you know, um, neutral way of saying it, you know, conformity is bad. Almost everyone would agree with that. Um, but I do think 
many of these, you know, like evolutionary politeness procedures are um, are themselves an X risk. I've written yeah. I've written a paywalled article for this. I'll, I'll write something that's not paywalled about this. Eventually, I don't know. <laughs> um, because it, it makes us like sort of like yes men, basically that we don't um, we're not disagreeable enough. Disagreeable enough. Yeah, not just not disagreeable enough, but that the arc of politeness kind of bends towards evil. That it's actually a tool that is more so used by evil against good rather than good against evil. Um, not not just in the kind of like conformity sense, the kind of Hannah Arendt sense that you can like ignore evil that becomes like a routine, but that like the things that people are intrinsically polite about are kind of like are are themselves an X risk. That's the best way of putting it because that's mm-hmm. like, that's literally what I believe in that you know this is one of the uh, kind of exercises, the kind of toy models that I have uh, in the in the paywalled piece is that you know. You can model, there, there's a supply and demand for envy and a supply and demand for like productivity. The The less people have, the more they value kind of great leaders, great contributions, inventions, technology. And the more people have, the less the less motivation there is to, to create in that way, you know. And then simultaneously, the more people have the more envy there is, the, the the more desire to, you know, I distinguish envy from jealousy. You know, it's not original to me, of course. But like the dis- distinction between envy and jealousy is that envy, uh, that jealousy, you know, you you want, you see something that someone else has and you want it for yourself. Yeah. But envy, you don't even want it for, for yourself. You just want to destroy it. You just don't, you want to deprive the other. And I think that the desire to deprive the other is the number one thing that's lied about. That is the thing that is brought about, that is brought into the world, that is encouraged, that is incentivized by this type, by the specific type of politeness culture that exists in the West. Yeah. Well, not just the West, but I mean, Northern Europe too. <laughs> um... Yeah, yeah. Like all of, you know, <coughs> and, and I do think it exists to some degree in Eastern societies as well. To, to a lesser degree, but, you know, like, given given more prosperity will be a pr- problem in Eastern societies as well, where you just have this kind of, like... Like Japan? Yeah, J- Japan kind of is a good example of um, avoiding this, at least in the short term, right? That there, There's more of a... It, it's weird. There's not quite, you know, I think the tax rate is so higher in Japan, but there's less of a kind of explicit hatred of companies you, you you know like to be fair america is also the, the worst case in this is actually the eu the eu is just awful when it comes to this right. um i was talking to um i i forget his name now but the guy who hosts the fai podcast Evan. about this as well you just look at their speeches they just like i, I put it this way like china wants to restrict innovation in order to control the people the EU wants to control the people in order to restrict innovation. They just hate it. Yeah. They just have a desire to deprive people of innovation. Um, Especially American-made. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, right? It's this, like, extremely, you know, there's not there's not good enough of an epithet for it, you know? Yeah. 
Well, that's so partly a survival. Better epithets for MDS people. It's a survival mechanism in the case of the EU, because the European Common Market and the EU came together in the period where people thought history had ended, um, and when you know the, when you have a, a undemocratic technocratic body whose only purpose is to like squeeze the last bit of efficiency out of like harmonizing uh, people's like teapot regulation. <laughs> <laughs> like that that's regulating for the end of history um and it's it's uh it's locking it's trying to lock in a particular technological mode of production and state of affairs um under the assumption that there's no more no no more new mode of production to come um and that's and that's why you know a place like germany for instance their the average age of their companies is is like 50 to 100 years uh you know like you have siemens and and uh volkswagen and these ancient companies, um, whereas like the U.S. S and P 500, the average age is like 20 years, um, and we have much more um, creative destruction, much more private equity, much deeper securities markets, and so forth. Um, but yeah, I do think it does come from a kind of level levelers, like it's it's downstream from a yeah, yeah, the, a levelers it's, it's a egalitarianism. Instant, yeah, reverse dominance. Like egalitarianism is not just a great kind of moral evil but it is literally an apocalyptic desire. <laughs> and the reason why it's an apocalyptic desire is that the ability to maintain is actually the same as the ability to create, you know? Yeah. That if you just ban, if you be, ban the creation of new things, it's analogous to, you know, committing civilizational suicide in, yeah. just with a time delay. Yeah. Cause there's depreciation and um, yeah, you exactly, need, you exactly. need renewal. Uh, well, at least OpenAI has a red team. <laughs> uh, I know, like that, that, that maybe is actually my, like, like AI-driven forms of like, if there is like an egalitarian, like egalitarian, like this is very funny. People talk about you know like a theoretical paperclip maximizer, and I'm just like, oh, uh, have have you read a uh, have you read Richard Hanania's book? Uh, the Origins of Woke. No, but I yeah. yeah. So, so like the, the this is how i think this is a line in my review of that book is um you know the people invented the paperclip optimizer from the science fiction novel don't invent the paperclip optimizer and the paperclip optimizer of course is just is just civil rights law and, and like like any ai trained on civil rights law will like you know immediately start genociding whites and asians um <laughs> Like, like that is just, you know, it is the paperclip optimizer from the science fiction novel. Don't don't invent the paperclip optimizer. So I think that, yeah, like if people are given if people are given like if our ruling class is given that power, it will in and of itself be extremely dangerous. That That's my greatest AIX risk. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it could we could have a brain machine uh, interface that that removes our implicit bias. <laughs> anyways, anyways, back to the, back to the. I, I mean, like, it, it, there's an easier, there's an easier step than that, right? Um, you can, you know, with AI avatars, you can, you can seamlessly, you know, change race. You can be trans, transracial, and we right, will have that, a very that, interesting uh, revealed preference there. Um, yeah. I mean, that will just, that will just, I think accelerate the end of civil rights law making any sense right because yeah. once we're all once our resumes our name on our resume is you know xae 44 
and we're, <laughs> we're, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, exactly. uh, we're, uh, you know, uh, uh, dragon type or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was always premised on lies, but now, now we have the, you know, we have the technology to like blatantly disprove those lies with real preferences. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it also goes to like the, the hypothetical of like the, the glasses that can tell if you really mean it when you say you love me. Um, uh, you know, you could also have, uh, you know, video classifiers that will classify who's sincere when they sign their diversity, diversity statement and who's just, who's just signing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If the ideal, the ideology has to either die to the truth or it will, you know, become totalitarian in, um, in suppressing the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Many, many such cases, you know, everything is the asymptote. Indeed. But um, I, I just resist being too in, you know, I resist the in-group. I resist, <laughs> but maybe this is like my meta uh, contrarianism and, and uh, nonconformity because, um, you know, there are different modes of egalitarianism, right? Um, there's also just the concept of social cooperation and a cooperative society um, that's able to, co- to coordinate. And... Um, I don't think adversarialism and instrumentalization are inherent goods. And, uh, you know, I do think there are a set of, of risks that are only mediated and only mitigated through the ability to cooperate and to converge on like the universal solution, like, you know, well, yeah, ar- so arms, tr- arms treaties, right. right. That there's, you know, rule of law, Right, which I think is what you're talking about and what these original political theorists are talking about. Um, you know, there, there are, um, you know, it's like Caldwell said, there's the old constitution and the new constitution. There's the idea that people are, people owe a responsibility to, to like not kill each other, you know, negative rights. And then there's the idea that people are guaranteed uh, you know, guaranteed the fruits of other people's labor. And, you know, the, the, those two things are inherently in conflict. They, they cannot, they in fact cannot coexist because the mechanism of guaranteeing other people's, you know, other people, the fruits of labor of other people is the, you know, is the re- suspension of their freedoms. Mm-hmm. So I think, you you know, like, Honestly, like I'm pretty skeptical of the Iglesias piece. I I think that you know, like, if we did not have the Terminator, you know, if that was not like a movie archetype, no one would think that this is a plausible scenario. He's just doing like an ad hoc. Why is it not? A I don't think scenario? it's really like a mood affiliation thing. You know, there are a lot of libs who hate the EAs now, and the EAs are just much better people. And the Iglesias wants to make it clear that, you know, they're, they're good people, uh, uh, which is a good thing. You know, like I kind of agree with the meta message of the uh, of the Iglesias essay. But the way he does it, I think, is. Just well, let's good. just strip out that part of it and just focus on why, why is why is a Terminator scenario actually implausible? Because, like, it's just OK, so so, so he. It, it's more like, you know, there there are so many future. He kind of like asserts that like this one is plausible and then he just like 
I, I, I think it really is, buy the argument. Or, I don't or, think, I think a better provides uh, much evidence for it at all. A better a better mental image might be there's a I forget the episode, but there's an episode of Black Mirror, um, where there are these like robot dogs that once they're awakened will will hunt you down, um, and you know, extremely dexterous, uh, will lock onto their target and just chase it down and and, and eviscerate it, um. You know, when I when I watch, you ever watch like uh, speed running and video games on YouTube? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, humans are far from super intelligences, but but yet, you know, we're able to find these ways of like beating Mario sixty four in like three and a half minutes by expo- exploiting all these incredible exploits to like clip through walls and stuff like that, and it takes an incredible amount of talent. Or if you watch like esports. And um, yeah, well, the are going to be backwards, long jumping through reality. Yeah, you know, they're not they're not going to uh, you know be able to break the space time continuum or like violate physics. But um, you know we're going to go from cars that can drive themselves at a human level to cars that are 100x better than human to cars that can take corners like they're professional race car drivers and can find different angles and like do do you know do things that no human could um or like drone racing uh you know these are things that are within human capabilities and um and are pretty you know, don't require super intelligence to have um you know we the, the kind of irobot world where there are like our robots like low cost robots that um, can I, you know, or, or like the Wild Wild West uh, with the uh, Will Smith, where where they have like those uh, decapitation drones that fly and de- de- decapitate the target. That, that that most of that technology stack exists. Um, it just needs to be put together, and um, you know maybe there's a range problem. <laughs> you know maybe the batteries need to get denser for the uh, for the robot to really uh, catch up with you. Um, right. So, so we have the means for a lot of terrorism now, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people could be like the Unabomber right now if they wanted to. And yet they're not <laughs> right. Like, well, um, I mean, we of did course have, we do have like airport security. We do have, you know, copious measures to deal with these things, but there are still many openings that people could, you know, non-trivially take. And, um, yeah, we have, but we have, you know, we have an epidemic but, of school shooters. Um, you know, it's not, it's often not the misanthrope that wants to destroy the world. It's the, uh, incel who was bullied and wants to get revenge. Um, or the, uh, ex lover who in, in their jealousy or envy or whatever, you know, you, I mean, I think, I feel like if you, if, if envy is like this construct that permeates everything, then I think you should see how, how plausible this is. Um, you know, there'll be those motivations. Uh, and there are, there are, you know, I think the number of genuinely psychopathic people is, 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 uh, like, okay, bless, okay, blessedly okay, a small sliver society, but, but it turns out that, you know, being actually psychopathic actually come, you know, there are some, there are plenty of smart psychopaths, but people who are, um, uh, you know, people in our prisons, uh, you know, have below average IQ, right? They're not, um, people who have a violent, ten- violent and impulsive tendencies, 
is also correlated with not being a elite programmer. <laughs> and so um, I think there are uh, the, the, the kind of um, base rate of terrorism that, that we, that is, that is uh, surprisingly low, you know, that does owe to our basic civilization or basic civilized natures and our better angels. But there are plenty of people who would cause harm, um, but are basically unable to cause harm uh, because of their own lack of self-control and, um, and aptitudes. Yeah. I think that these things, you know, I, I believe in, you know, marginal changes. I, I, I do think that in a world where, you know, AI technologies are more accessible, there will be marginally more terrorism. Do I think that it's enough for regime change? You know, I, I think that we just disagree on the effect size. You know, I mean, the point is that it's really asymmetric. Size. It's asymmetric is, is the main thing. And, and also there are, there are ways of, um, especially if you, if we're just restricted to the virtual realm, um, of creating, you know, if once we have agentic malware <laughs> that, uh, can control, control your operating system and make copies of itself and self-replicate, self-replicate, like, like we're looking at the, another Morris worm, right? The Morris worm was a early worm that shut down the, the early internet in the late eighties. They literally had to turn the internet off and partition the net, the network. <laughs> um, uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's, yeah, this is a, and I don't think it will be, you know, just digital, right? It'll be mimetic. That's the most powerful thing. Um, it will be able to affect individual people into kind of recapitulating it uh, as well. Um, yeah, there. I don't think I'd necessarily disagree with you on this. This, I think, is the biggest point. It's not the Terminator stuff. It's like, what if we just took computer viruses and gave them a psychological dimension? And <laughs> already, you know, I, I have an article in the works called, like, Precedented AI Risks. And it's just like quotes from the Kevin Mitnick book. Um, do, do, do you know this? Do you know who Kevin Mitnick is? Yeah, the cypherpunk. I, I read a yeah, yeah, yeah. like like the hacker hacker guy. Yeah, you use um, like the uh, beeps and boops. Yeah, yeah. There, there are so many people. Like this was, of course, a long time ago. It was with worse, you know, cybersecurity practices. But you can just like call people and ask them for a password reset uh, of like some random guy, <laughs> like some right. some random like system administrator. And you'd be like, "Hey, I am I am this guy's name, you know. <laughs> um, uh, give me, uh, give me, give me, you know, give me his password, yeah. yes. or like I, I would like to reset my password, you yeah. know." Social engineering is uh, exactly. definitely a major vulnerability, but you know, they were also doing things like the what I mean by beeps and boops is like you, you could dial into uh, a payphone, and if you made the right tones, uh, connect to a network because the network communicated through like when you did when you used to boot up your dial up those random uh that that was like a passcode that got you into the network um that that's an example that's an example of like mario speedrunning exploits right yeah yeah on the when it comes to the online world i'm very sympathetic to this like yeah the the precedented the precedence to ai risk article it's a lot of this stuff it's a lot of just like how vulnerable the existing online world is even to, you know, relatively, you know, relatively, of course, ele- elementary exploits. Um, but, but even, yeah, even, even the real like, Terminator thing, like, you know, we just had in Canada, 
uh, Indian foreign agents assassinate a, a Sikh man, right, uh, on our sovereign soil. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a, a a a technology wing to the Iran- Iranian military, um, and one of their spokespeople was just quoted as saying that he he sees AI as a tool to make fatwas easier. Um, <laughs> so you know, fatwa GPT. You know, is the you know uh, Salman Salman Rushdie is the, is John Connor, right? Oh <laughs> yeah, for for Salman Rushdie, uh, you you know what you know what I buy it yeah this uh, yeah Salman Rushdie particularly will have a rough time, um, yeah I think he'll make you know he'll make existing targets, um, yeah much. Their lives will become much harder. Yeah, and and it'll be you know it's so it's so easy to kill somebody, um, it, and <laughs> once you don't even have to be physically present, uh, it's going to be even easier. And and I don't think it's going to be restricted to nation state actors because we're talking about technology becoming more democratized and in a really rapid way. Um, and you can easily imagine at a low level, like somebody, you know, an ex boyfriend who wants to get back on their girlfriend. Instructing the, you know, Auto GPT 5.0 to uh, to terrorize her for eternity, to you know order her a hundred pizzas from Domino's, to constantly to, <laughs> to constantly spoof phone calls, to like contact her employer and say that she's on heroin, and to do that incessantly. And if she moves, um, but but uploads a picture to Instagram, it'll use its multimodal capabilities to determine what city she's in. Um, and so on and so forth. And it may be the, the sort of thing that the boyfriend comes to re- regret ever unleashing on her, but is uh, unfortunately um, copied across multiple servers and can't be pulled back. And so this woman ends up having to have facial reconstructive surgery. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's that boy, you know, uh, because of envy, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends do stuff like that in a lesser degree in ways that in ways that they regret, including like revenge porn and things like that. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, just 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 that, you know, yeah. And and I think the way we resolve that is in either through, you know, there's the China model of, you know, thou shalt not train an AI that undermines national u- unity. <laughs> And you need security reviews if you want to build an LLM, um, which so that's that's one model. We're we're blowing past that. We're never going to have that model in the West. The other model is you have you know lower level units that develop varieties of social protection uh, that build you know Chinese style firewalls within the local area network um, that have. Uh, uh, ion guns and uh, other other defensive tech to to shoot down drone swarms, <laughs> um, and those things will have to come online and be managed and, and updated in an adversarial arms race kind of way, in a way that governments simply can't do because they can't even procure a face mask in less than twelve months. Yeah, I think like. Yeah, the state capacity problem is getting, you know, quote-unquote solved in one way or the other. Uh, Yeah, so that brings us to the beginning again, right? Like, that's where I agree with you. 
the most. Um, I mean, to tie this back in with kind of the death of Straussianism, what do you, what do you think will be the role of like elitism in the future? You you know like there there's this, um, you know it's kind of like vaguely associated with Nietzsche, but I don't think it's just him. Of like the, the, this critique of uh, concern for the victim of kind of uh, you know more the more modern equivalent is kind of critique of democracy that is just kind of nonsensical. I, I do think, like, 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 this goes back to the, you know, do you think we'll have elections in, in 2040 thing, right? Yeah, I mean, in my piece, I do say that I think, I mean, I, I think the, I think total state collapse is, is very hard to pull off in a, in a country as, uh, as, as uh, built up as, as strong as the United States. Um, but there is a world where things increasingly become outsourced and the government ends up becoming basically a nexus of contracts, like competitive bids, um, you know, in the same way that like we used to build the Apollo project and now we just get test, uh, SpaceX to do it for us. Uh, but like writ large. Um, and so what, you know, what do elections become then? I, I mean, at this, at this point, you know, we're imagining a world where the civil service is basically fully transitioned to AI. And the thing about the deep state is it depends on human discretion to be, to be a deep state. And so if you substituted all those humans with compliant AIs that are following a policy, um, I think it ends up making government whiplash a lot more uh, because the Vivek administration can come in and change, change the meta prompt and completely reorient the ship of state. Um, so there are ways in which politics becomes much more high, high stakes. You know, we like, the flight 93 kind of framing becomes more, more realistic. Um, yeah. yeah. Have you seen this? <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, have you seen this tweet of mine where I just took um, the flight 93 election, um, the most important century. I'm just like, this, these are the same. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this goes yeah, back yeah. to our conversation earlier about how these are just, you know, these are the same thing in a higher dement, uh, <laughs> in a higher, in a higher topos or something like that. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I, there's there's too much agreement in this podcast. Yeah, I think I think there I think there <laughs> I think there is uh, too much consensus. <laughs> well, we're Sorry, just, so the question was was will we still have elections again? Um, or or can you? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, the the other thing was like the kind of especially, I I think there will be actually like quite a long period where like ai replaces some but not all humans right um uh, i mean i don't think it's instant either i but i think it's decades like one or two decades not uh centuries okay yeah then the, the, i don't think we do i don't think we disagree that much i maybe more than two decades but um in in my view uh but you know Sorry, the, the main point, the, the, the main point is, you know, uh, you can, actually, this is true of current, the, the great thing is that this is true of, like, existing ChatGPT, you know, it draws a line bet between people, you can say that there's, maybe there are some people where it's kind of blurry, but you can say there is clearly, you know, sub GPT-3 writing, level writing, 
and there is clearly you know above ChatGPT right. level writing, and some people are below the line, and some people are above the line, and I think that existing machine learning technologies introduce that comparison for a lot. And I was talking about this with John Escanis that you know that there's a reason why all kind of like all all kind of like myths about gods that are not you know like the christian god that are literally you know like like there's a reason why like polytheistic uh religions or even versions of christianity that are that believe in stuff like demons or angels uh having having any role in kind of ordinary life are are like eradicated it's because you know the ideology of the age cannot tolerate the idea of things that are superhuman in some ways and subhuman in other ways that even raise the comparison, right? That, that draw that line. And, you know, well, now, now those things are undeniable. They're a part of undeniable reality. Yeah. I mean, um, if you have GPT pro and the advanced data analysis slash code, code interpreter, you know, that's happy to make a bell curve for you. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there there is that. I, I mean, and this goes back to our previous podcast where we talked more about AI and religion. Um, you know, the Protestant Reformation ushered in this uh, idea of the cessation of miracles. That um, yeah, exactly. Uh, that you know, all the previous miracles from the Catholic dogma and so forth, they they're they're done. There's no more walking on water. There's no more turning water into wine. Um, that was from an earlier era. We've sort of entered into this new era. And so it sort of set up this uh, disenchantment, right? Where we rid the forest of the spirits. Um, and those spirits will be brought back in once we have, you know, toasters that can talk to you. Um, and things that like pass the uncanny valley um, in a way that hacks our brain to the, you know, to even the, the deepest, you know, someone who knows exactly how machine learning works and knows it's just a AI will be fooled. Um, uh, perceptually into understanding it as an intelligent spiritual kind of being, um, you know, the age, of, yeah, yeah. the age of spiritual machines, right? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, uh, to get to the, the, the problem with this, but, the, but this goes to, again, like to your point about the, the Nietzschean sort of the drawing a line and so forth. Um, uh, that 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 ends up you know that kind of that kind of ethic of uh you know understanding higher and lower and so forth you know it is it does correlate with a kind of gnosticism and paganism um so maybe oh, interesting maybe, how is it gnostic uh because you ask the machine the meaning of life and it tells you 42 and you have no idea how it told you that or what what the hell <laughs> what the hell it means um i mean that's like revelatory i i mean it's gnostic in that you know like you you the machine is you're, you're treating the machine as like the true god whatever and then like you know god is supposed to be the demiurge eh, i guess but it's knowledge, like, knowledge in a world of in the world we're heading into is is um you know if there is a re-enchantment um you know and already look at the survey data and you know Sixty percent of women believe in astrology, and uh, you know, like even even um, quite quite a high percentage of 
purported atheists like believe in a variety of superstitions. So, you know, people believe in angels and demons already. That <laughs> there's a lot of new. Yeah, yeah, the aesthetic of the age is like techno. It's like techno spiritualism. It's Rocco. It's Rocco's basilisk. Right. You know, it's like the the like the the AI ghost will haunt you. It's not a real. It's not a normal ghost. You know, it's an AI ghost. Right. That makes it special. But the the, um, the reason this leads to a kind of Gnosticism is because basically the the fraction of the people who have uh you know true justified beliefs <laughs> becomes incredibly uh rarefied um and is a kind of special knowledge uh in the same way that you know there's a striking number of of catholic bishops who are secretly atheists mm. like just in the, in the in the sense that there is like you know, there's like a false world and there's there's a true world, right? That that, that there's this like this revelation process going on as the world is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess that's fair. I don't know. To me, it feels like a bit more broad than Gnosticism. But once again, you know, this is mostly just a difference in terms. Like like I understand what you mean. I still disagree that it's Gnosticism, but 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 I you know I get it. Um, I, I get, I get at least you know many of the similarities. You know, to be fair. Um, well, yeah. the 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 issue is so, like, the physical world is a closed causal substrate, right? Like, like there's no spooky action at a distance for things to happen. There has to be physical mechanisms behind it. Um, this is why astrology is false, because whether Mercury is in recession or not does not have any causal mechanism to, to impact whether I'm going to have a good first date. Um, uh, and moreover, it's like millions of miles away. Um, and, and you know, w- like Kabbalah and Gnosticism, a lot, a lot of what these ideas are, you know, what, what unites them is this idea that the symbolic realm can have causal effect. Right, that like evil, good and evil are actual things in the world that are imbued in things that you know. If you break glass, you're you're cursed for seven years. Um, okay, see, so see, I have like a much more, I think, fine grained version of the Gnostic story, which is about you know the aeons and the inner, you know, the in, the inner truth, you know, your truth. Um, if, if anything, like. I see machine learning as taking as like, yeah, I agree with you that it's, it's moving in a spiritual direction. I have no disagreement with that. I absolutely think that's the case, but it just doesn't really match the Gnostics. If anything, like the current environment to me matches the Gnostic story more where, you know, you just need to find yourself and you just find your inner, you know, your inner Gnosis, you know, um, you are the aeons, you know, everyone, everyone is an aeon. Um, where where like almost the machine learning uh, models give you a kind of uh, either you know multiple sources of truth or outside source of truth mm-hmm. that seems actually like very very divergent from the kind of gnostic present. Uh, well, I think I think the but, trend I think it's an accelerating trend, and you know we were talking about earlier about sort of the recontextualization and being able to you know, relocalize your your truth, your your values, and so forth, and have ways of translating, but. But you know, we could live in totally different environments and be speaking to different languages and yet communicate. 
like that is a that is a limiting kind of narcissism and the esoteric reality the thing that you know is rarefied is the ability to step outside that and to say actually you know the world isn't mediated by symbols and, and mystical forces and your inner knowledge isn't actually a source of anything other than uh, narcissism um but uh but that's a, a kind of info hazard um and something that really only a few are equipped to deal with um because to like yeah, to- this is the new this is the new internet ideology let's call it um uh, basilisk narcissism <laughs> This is this is this is great. This is the uh, this is the future religion. I, I think like there there is a kind of gnostic like thing where you know, um, like to be a to be a true rationalist, like like to really pull on that thread as as long as you can, um, is to have a psychic psychic break. It's not it's not recommended. It, being a rationalist is not a, a healthy way to be. Um, you know, it turns you into people like Robin Hanson. Uh, it turns you into people like Yosha Bach. Uh, the, 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 these these folks are are perpetually uh, self conscious and self aware of the fact that they live in this hypocritical world, and it's very draining. It's uh, it, it even leads to a kind of in, a kind of depersonalization. Like once you start to realize that actually I'm just living in the simulated world of constructs, um, and my identity is illusion. Like that's not. That's not something most people need to know. Damn. Um, see, like, a lot of my ideology is about making everyone know, <laughs> you know, proliferating technology in a way that makes it, you know. I, I think people will, like, embrace the, you know, post-hypocritical like it's a coordination problem right if like some people are hypocritical and like not everyone is hypocritical then you know it's it's just a disadvantage then then yeah you should be you should be like i i agree with you in that situation but i think that if you know if technology forces the equilibrium the other way it's actually pretty natural to be you know at least relative to the present honest about more things not honest about like literally everything but like Especially the, you know, especially the degree to which you know envy is worshipped, and you know, like, to which egalitarianism is proliferated. I I do like. I don't know. It, it's to to me, it's like. Just seeing, what that does to you know, just seeing you know, like social anxiety is one very clear manifestation of this of people becoming you know even afraid to interact with people afraid to people people like don't realize the link between these two of like oh if you believe that people have these like enormously like sacred intrinsic value you know going back to going back to now being peak gnosticism if you believe that people have these huge intrinsic values and you're kind of like afraid to offend them in any way like i think these things are deeply connected and i think that it it results in people just being miserable anyways yeah. you know that is a very you know that that was a very good quote though it's a lot to think about i will put it i will put it in the intro you know don't be like robin hansen no i don't put that in the intro oh, that's up to you put it in the intro uh, my hypocrisy there'll, there'll be a lot in the intro it'll be the last clip in the intro that's the compromise <laughs>
<laughs> Come on, you have to admit it's a good clip. I'll put the entire thing in there. Uh, it's all you. Yeah, uh, do, you, do you want? To, would you like to answer the last question of the show? Let's do it. Yeah, uh, same same as every single time uh, you've been here, and everyone else has been here, uh, except for Robin Hansen. Actually, he's the only one who didn't have to answer it because uh, he was here before the first time he was here. It was before that was the official last question of the show. But um, what is something that is too much chaos and needs more order? Uh, and what is something that's too much order and needs more chaos? Preferably things we have not talked about yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we talked about a lot of things that have too much chaos and need more order and or vice versa. Too much chaos and needs more order would be um, American federalism. Uh, too much order and needs more chaos would be the education system K to 12 through college. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. I hope you liked this episode with Sam Hammond. If you did, please let me know and leave us a comment, a five-star review, and let us know on social media. As always, the best way you can help the show, like I said at the beginning, is to let a friend know, either in person or online. You can also subscribe on the Substack for free for many articles, most articles are free, as well as for uh, a paid subscription, which will give a few more benefits, including the post-podcast reflection, where I discuss some of the major topics and themes of the episode, uh, and you can get that in your normal podcast feed once you've subscribed to the paid Substack, that will be linked below. As always, if you'd like another great episode every Monday, you can subscribe to the show and you'll be getting that next Monday, as I said. See you then!